Welcome to the show. Um, I have an update on the Iran situation that we're going to lead with because, of course, that's the most important story in the world right now, maybe rivaled by the Australia fires, but we're going to get to that a little bit later in the show. Um, Media Matters put together a compilation of the Fox News coverage of the Iran situation, and um, they're, they're just they're the neocon warmonger network. It's amazing. I guess the only dissenting voices were Tucker Carlson and Geraldo Rivera, but everybody else is putting the, you know, the warmongering on steroids. It's really a wild thing to see, especially when it's spliced back-to-back in that compilation. So we're going to get to that. Um, a conservative host on the Blaze Network uh, said the dumbest thing you've ever heard about the war in Iraq. We're going to get to that as well. Who is the biggest threat to world peace? Well, we have some new polling data to share with you. Um and then later on in the show, your meat is absolutely disgusting, and the lack of regulation is going to maybe turn you into a vegetarian or a vegan. I know that sounds extreme, but I, I mean it. <laughs> You're going to hear the story and be like, oh, no. So we got that and much more. Without further ado, let's get started. Um and we'll kick it off. I want to give everybody that update on the issue, the, the situation in Iran. <clears throat> so we were on the brink of absolute disaster with Iran because of a series of events that led to, I mean, you can say the brink of war, but I think it's fair to say that we're actually in a state of war because Trump assassinated their top general, and you don't do that and get to call it 
not a war. That's not a thing. If Iran assassinated General Petraeus, pretty sure we would think they declared war on us. So um, I have some, I don't want to say good news, but it's as good as the news could possibly be, given the fact that we already had at hand. So um, thankfully, Iran worked behind the scenes to tell the Iraqi government that they were going to bomb a U.S. base in Iraq. And they did this on purpose, guys. So the last time I spoke about this, uh, we had just reported, Corin and I, that uh, Iran attacked a U.S. base. It was up in the air as to whether or not there were any casualties. And um, it looked like, oh, my God, this is worst-case scenario. Trump's going to you know, declare all-out war now, war war, and do a ground invasion and all this stuff. That's what it looked like was going to unfold. But we learned just after that that Iran worked behind the scenes to let Iraq know in advance, and knowing that Iraq would then turn around and tell the United States that they're going to attack that base. So what that did was it gave the United States and it gave Iraq time to remove their people from the base. So basically, Iran bombed an empty base, um, although there are reports that the stuff they targeted at the base, it was like weaponry, which actually makes all the sense in the world because if the United States is assassinating your generals and attacking you, yeah, you would want to take out some of their military capability now, wouldn't you? So, um, but either way, it, it really is a best-case scenario given what we knew, you know, the other day because it looked like, oh, my God, here we go. But that was actually a brilliant tactical maneuver uh, on the part of the Iranian government because nobody died. And what it did is it allowed them to go back to their own population, and they want a pound of flesh from the United States for obvious reasons. We just assassinated their top general. You know, it, that's not something anybody gets away with. But it allowed the Iranian government to go back to their people and be like, you know, oh, we struck back against the big bad Americans. And um, if I'm not mistaken, they were reporting that people died. Now, that's not true, and we know that's not true, but that's what they're reporting to their own people, presumably because they want them to think like, yeah, we, we fought back and, uh, and it worked. So I don't care what, what they say as long as this thing doesn't get even more out of hand than it already is. So they were able to go and tell their people, see, we struck back because they didn't have an option. They had to strike back. But then also what that did is it provided um, an off-ramp for the U.S. where it's like, hey, listen, we just kind of looked out for you and, and made sure none of your people were killed in a strike because they knew if we kill even one American, Trump really is going to say all systems go and the gloves are off. So that gave the U.S. an off-ramp, and Trump came out and gave a speech yesterday, and I, at first I, my heart dropped in my stomach because I saw all the military people were walking out first along with Mike Pence, and I'm like, oh, oh no. Oh, this is not a good sign. Trump's giving a speech in the middle of the day, and he's got military people behind him along with Mike Pence. Here we go. I thought Trump was going to do a flat declaration of war. But thank God. All it was, and it's wrong to say, oh, all this was, but it, it is, given the context of how bad it could have been, we can reflect on this and 
you know, be <laughs> lean a little more in the happy direction. He gave a speech where, yes, he lied repeatedly, and he said things that were insane and untrue, and nonstop fear-mongering about Iran over and over and over. But what Trump said is, oh, Iran backed down, and, uh, you know, we're going to add more sanctions to them. Now, the sanctions are an act of economic warfare. They're terrible. They hurt the civilian population. I can go on and on and on about how bad the sanctions are. But I'm just so happy that it wasn't, he didn't go out there and say, here we go. A flat declaration of war, all systems go. We got 300,000 American ground troops that are about to invade. Because that's really where it could have gone. Now, we're not out of the woodworks yet, though, because... Um, Guys, there's dissent in the ranks of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. You know, not everybody agrees with the Grand Ayatollah's move here. I, I, listen, you're never going to hear these words come out of my mouth almost ever. But you've got to give this dude credit. Because his move was the only thing he could have possibly done to, like, get out of this situation scot-free post the murder of the general. Um, but there are people in his own government, at high levels, who think that what he just did was a weak, weak move. And so there's dissent in the ranks, and the Grand Ayatollah is, uh, you know, the target of a lot of anger from within their own government. Because there are military people, there are people within the Iranian Revolutionary Guard who are like, that's all you're going to do? You're not going to stand up to the Americans in any real way? And there are reports, now these reports are unconfirmed, I have to say, before I make this point, that there were arrests of certain military leaders uh, in Iran. And, you know, that can cut a whole bunch of different ways. We don't know the specifics of it. We don't even know if it's true yet. But if that is true, that would mean that some people were planning a coup since Soleimani died. Soleimani, the general, was also the protector of the Grand Ayatollah. So it could mean that the Grand Ayatollah said, oh, my God, you know, People are going to try to topple me now. There's going to be a coup of me. Um, so they arrested immediately, act, acted quickly, and arrested the people who they thought would do the coup. You know, or it could work the other way. Um, or it could be they were arrested because they would have been the protectors of the Grand Ayatollah, and now there's about to be a coup. That could happen as well. I mean, there's, it's too hard to determine what's going on in that government at this moment, but we do know as a matter of fact that many people wanted American blood after we killed their general. And, you know, if, if somebody killed one of our generals, <laughs> the American public, I'm sure, would want the same thing. So, um, but it was a brilliant, he, my friend said it best, that he, he has a tactical mind to do what he did here because he provided that off-ramp, and frankly, I think we lucked out that Trump, at the last minute, was like, we'll do more sanctions, but, oh, Iran is backing down, so, you know, we're good, effectively. Oh. But I, I also do think that this proves that the, what I call the impulsive theory about Trump is correct. So, in other words, he really is just like, he's shooting from the hip, man. He's, he's making decisions on a whim, He's not really thinking through the consequences. Um, you know, it's scary because he surrounded himself with all these neocons, and if they happen to make an argument that resonates with him on any given day, 
you know, we could start three new wars in one day because he goes, oh, I agree with what Pompeo said today or Gina Haspel or any of them. So I do think that Trump's backing down at the last minute shows that the decision to assassinate the general was just on a whim. And he really thought, and this is hard to imagine, but he really thought, like, no, I can do this and there won't be many consequences. Now, I don't know what's worse, if the, if the impulsive theory is correct or if the grand plan is correct. So the grand plan theory is the other theory that I said was a possibility, which is the idea that the United States killed General Soleimani knowing Iran would have to respond and then knowing that we can then unleash the hounds and try to do regime change officially. You know, I was leaning towards the grand plan theory that, like, no, this is – they did it because they knew Iran had to respond, so then we could actually go to war and topple them. That's what I thought was the case. But after Trump's decision yesterday, now I'm leaning in the other direction, and I just think that he's incredibly impulsive, and he does things on a whim. And um, it's not necessarily that there was this nefarious idea that, like, oh, then Iran will attack us, and then we're good to go in because he didn't want to do a ground invasion at least. So that leads me to believe he was just sitting there one day, and whether it was, uh, you know, uh, General Soleimani sniping at him on Instagram and on social media. Trump may have caught wind of that and said, I don't like this guy. Oh, we have the option to kill him. Okay, kill him. Could have been that. Could have been, you know, Trump thinking, because he said it in 2011 about Obama. I think Obama will bomb Iran to get reelected. He could be thinking, oh, I'll just bomb Iran quickly, and then we'll get reelected. He could have been thinking that, or to distract from impeachment. We know, as a matter of fact, that that's what Bill Clinton did. Bill Clinton distracted from impeachment by bombing the Al-Shifa pharmaceutical factory. I mean, that, all these things are possible, and it probably was a mix of, of things that led to him making the decision. But I'm convinced that Trump actually thought, oh, I could just assassinate a general, and everybody in the, in the U.S. is going to be like, hip, hip, hooray, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, for Trump's a jolly good fellow. Damn, I can't hit a note, <laughs> which nobody can deny. He really thought, he, like, everybody, it, this would be unanimous. Everybody, yeah, yes, he killed our top terrorists. Yeah. Except the reaction was, oh, my God, you just sparked an international crisis and committed a war crime and killed the general who was responsible for being the front line against ISIS and was on a peace mission at this very moment that you killed him, trying to get Iran's Saudi tensions to wind down. Oh, my God, what have you done? So I do think it's just... He's just not smart. Trump is just not smart. And that was super impulsive of him to do it. But either way, I don't care what the reasoning was, whether it was the grand plan theory of the neocons that they hashed or if it was Trump's impulsiveness. Either way, he's got to go, man. Trump has got to go. Of all the terrible things he's done since he's been in office, I do think that this is probably in the top three worst things. Because of, because of on its own merits, it's insane. It's illegal under U.S. law. It's illegal under international law. I mean, the precedent it sets is absolutely unreal. You just assassinate, heads, uh, you know, leaders of, of nation states. What? <laughs> I mean, insanity. So if you could do it, well, then Russia could turn around and say, well, we could do it too. China could turn around and say, we could do it too. Iran could turn around and say, we could do it too. So good luck to any senator who wants to visit, you know, whatever, Iraq or uh, Afghanistan to visit our troops to go to a U.S. war zone on Christmas or something. Good luck. So, I mean, the consequences of this on its own merits, how dumb it was from a moral perspective and an ethical perspective, but, perspective, but also a strategic perspective, I mean, it's, it, he's impulsive. And, and notice, there is no coherent philosophy to his foreign policy. 
It's not there. That's why, on the one hand, he's pursuing peace with North Korea, and on the other hand, he's pursuing war with Iran. Now, you can say, oh, well, he backed away at the last second. But he created the problem in the first place when you, he assassinated the general. We pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement. We didn't have to do that. We put sanctions back on them. We didn't have to do that. We've escalated with them every step of the way. And it's not just Trump. It's throughout U.S. history, whether it's overthrowing their government in 1953, whether it's backing Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s and allowing Saddam to use chemical weapons on Iranians. You think they forget that? They haven't forgotten that, whether it's shooting down a commercial airliner, as was done in the past. So, um, I mean, this, this is the problem. The problem is he's massively impulsive. He has no coherent philosophy. And he's repeatedly pushed them to the brink, and then now he pulls away at the last second. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, he deserves a massive amount of credit. He shouldn't have assassinated the general in the first place when he never would have been in that crisis. Bernie said it best. It's like somebody starts a fire, and it burns down a bunch of stuff, and then that same person comes and puts out the fire, and then they're like, I'm a hero. What if you didn't start the fire in the first place? What about that? Um, but the final point is, the popular mobilization forces are a largely Shia militia in Iraq, okay? And their commander was also killed by Trump in the drone strike that killed General Soleimani. So there are rumors now that they're not okay with the weak response from the Iranian government because they, they know. They see what happened. They see that, you know, nobody died, and they see it was kind of a symbolic bombing to, like, save face and then give the Americans a chance to to stop from the brink of war, because they know how that war would end in the long run. They know it's worse for them than it is for us, even though it's bad for everybody. So popular mobilization forces saw that, and they were like, oh boy, we're not okay with this. And so there are rumors that they're going to go rogue, and like a bunch of bases in the Middle East, U.S. bases, are not safe right now, because they want to avenge their commander who was murdered, and they think the Iran response was weak. So... We're not out of the clear. And then, God forbid, they do, you know, effectively attack the U.S. base and maybe kill some soldiers. Then Trump will probably flip the blame right back on Iran, even though it wouldn't be their fault. It's the popular mobilization forces of Iraq. And, you know, the largely Shia paramilitary would have gone rogue. But he would flip it and probably blame Iran, and we're right back in there again. We're right back, you know, to the brink of the worst possible scenario yet again. So, um... We're not in the clear. And, I, I mean, listen, it appears to actually be the case that he thought he could just get away with this. Trump did. That's so insane, man. I mean, think about how stupid you have to be. Put everything else aside. Think about how dumb that is. You think you could just assassinate a, a foreign general with impunity? And remember, he's surrounded by Mike Pence, who bases his career off of Rush Limbaugh, and is an evangelical fundamentalist, doesn't even believe in evolution. Mike Pompeo's there. Again, he's an end times goon and a deep state stooge. He famously was saying, yeah, in the CIA, we lied, we cheat, we cheated, we stole. That's what we do. These are the guys who are surrounding him. So none of them had the foresight and didn't care that, oh, my God, this could spark an international crisis beyond imagination. And um, that's where we are now. So we're not out of the clear, just so everybody knows. And there, in fact, were stories yesterday of, rockets hitting uh, the heavily fortified green zone in Iraq. So, and that could just be the beginning. Other bases could be targeted by rogue Shia paramilitary elements who are not happy with the weak Iran response. 
But either way, man, this has been terrible. And my sense of it, and we'll get to some numbers later, is that people aren't buying this. I know Trump may have thought on some level, oh, if I bomb Iran, that'll help me. He miscalculated for the very simple reason he didn't propagandize us beforehand. When they did the war in Iraq, which was popular at the beginning, they had to spend a year telling us Saddam Hussein was about to, you know, kill everybody in the country, and he had weapons of mass destruction, and he worked with uh, Osama bin Laden, and, oh, my God, we have to act. They had to build that narrative first. That's what they had to do. Trump didn't build any narrative. We woke up one day, oh, my God, he assassinated a top Iranian general. What? What? So everybody was like, I, this is the most insane thing I've ever seen in my life. And everybody felt less safe, and by the way, that is true. We are much less safe now than we were beforehand. So flip, whatever Pompeo says, flip it on its head, because he's, oh, we had to do it to protect the country because there was an imminent threat. No evidence of an, of an imminent threat. That's preposterous. What he's pushed on, he says, it goes from imminent threat to, oh, uh, uh, actively, potentially plotting in the region. So no threat to the U.S. homeland. They say maybe in the region, but they use all these weasel words to lead you to believe that that's actually not true. So even though they say, oh, my God, this is to make us more safe, it made us less safe. It made Americans all around the world less safe. And, of course, you're threatening another war, which would lead to countless civilian deaths, countless trillions of dollars wasted. So um, this, this was all a terrible, 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 you know, situation and of the United States making. And thankfully, you know, we all took a deep breath yesterday when it turned out the worst case scenario wasn't happening, at least right now. But those military industrial complex wheels are still churning, man. They're still, they're still churning. And you got people who are making a lot of money off this stuff and would make a hell of a lot more if we actually went to that war. Plus we want their oil. Plus we want them to be a puppet state. Plus we got an impulsive idiot as our leader. So, we have got to get Donald Trump out. We've got to get Bernie Sanders in um, because I, I, I can't even take this stuff. And I'm, I follow it for a living, but, like, you know, imagine how a random mom in Iran feels. Imagine how, you know, the family members of a U.S. service person who's stationed in Iraq, Iraq right now feels. Imagine. Imagine that. Not good, man. Really not good. But there's your update on, on um, the U.S.-Iran crisis, and I hope, I hope, I don't have to talk too much more about it, and we can move on from this. Okay, next. All right, now we're still going to go after the media, because the media deserves this. Time to go after Fox News, bitch. Media Matters put together a compilation of Fox News coverage in the wake of the Iran crisis. And specifically here, this is after Iran responded to U.S. aggression by attacking our military base in Iraq, one of our military bases in Iraq. Now, thankfully, they were super responsible, and they told the Iraqi government, who then told the U.S., like, hey, just so you know, this is what we're going to do. 
which is a way of saying wink, wink, nod, nod, get your people out of there. Because Iran knows if they actually kill Americans, it's a wrap and the U.S. is going to ground invade. And, you know, we're in 2003 all over again with the Iraq war, except significantly worse, significantly worse. So um, it was actually really responsible of Iran to respond in that way and a clever political maneuver because they could go back to their own population and say, see, we went after the Americans. But then also there's a wink and a nod and it's kind of giving the U.S. an off-ramp to war. But, but. In the wake of Iran attacking that empty U.S. military base, what you're about to see is the coverage on Fox News. And this is outright, no-holds-barred, authoritarian, neocon propaganda. This is wild. This takes warmongering to a whole new level. It's warmongering on human growth hormone and steroids. Take a look. understand one language, and that's the language of death. This is the elephant in the room. A squared, B squared, C squared. Radical Islam. Iran is an imminent danger to our country, to our citizens, to our servicemen and women. The mullahs only understand one language, and that's the language of death. This is the elephant in the room. A squared, B squared, C squared. Radical Islamists with nuclear weapons. Exactly. Equals a potential modern-day holocaust, this regime, which is an evil regime. This is like if ISIS controlled the state, just Shia version. We will respond. We will leave that nation in tatters. And if there's a single leader left uh, walking around Iran, we will hunt them down ourselves or the Mossad. There will be retaliation, and it will be disproportionate. They need to come back to the table for talks on their nuclear capabilities. They need to come back limping and begging, not seething. I think Colonel North nailed it. The launch sites, the refineries, and maybe the nuclear sites, if, if they push this issue. The bottom line of it is you don't have to hit all of those all at the same time. We've got the capacity out there to do some serious damage. There are unquestionably sleeper cells in the United States operated, directed by Iran. We know, and we have indeed told the Iranian government that we know what they're up to and that we will strike back. And if, in fact, they ever think about it, it will be a new 9-11. For decades, the United States government pretended as though we didn't recognize that it was the Iranian government that was behind all of these militias. We can't kick the can down the road any longer in, in trying to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear bomb. But I don't think you should assume that Iran is too big to have regime change. If you do all these things that they have done now, basically pleading with us to hit them. They chose the wrong time with the wrong president. This president will unleash holy hell on that regime. You've got X amount of time before production facilities. We take out key infrastructure. We take out your missile sites. We take out nuclear development. That is we not take out popular capabilities. Or, or, you know what, take out a Quds headquarters uh, while you're at it if you want. War Crimes News Network Incorporated. That's what that is. That is unbelievable. I'm at a loss for words, and that does not happen often. So um, they literally start by talking about how Iran is somehow going to do a holocaust. 
they're trying to portray them as the Nazis so that, you know, the message is, oh, my God, they're so bad, they're so bad, they're so bad, we have to act now. Act now, act now, act now. So we are aggressive against them. We go on the offense as we pretend like, no, 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 we're just acting defensively. Guys, our military budget is like a gazillion dollars, and theirs is like 37 cents in a Pop-Tart. Do you really think that this is, oh, my God, an existential threat to our existence? Oh, my God. Nobody really thinks that. Anybody who's followed this stuff closely knows that we're the aggressor. How many times have I gone over the history of this stuff? In 1953, we overthrew their government. We did a coup, a CIA coup, and put in a dictator, the Shah. And then um, it was years later in 1979 that they overthrew our puppet dictator, who, by the way, let us take their oil, us in the UK. That's why we put them in there. But they overthrew that government, and we've wanted to change this government since 1979, U.S. corporate interests wanted to change that government since 1979. By the way, we also backed Saddam Hussein and Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war and let Saddam Hussein use chemical weapons against Iran. You think they don't remember that? Of course they remember that. So, you know, we pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement, we ripped up the deal, and now we blame them and act like they're the problem here? Um, He says, one of them says, Peter Hegseth, who's the biggest meathead of them all, who, by the way, is a um, Blackwater apologists. Blackwater is a private mercenary army of war criminals who massacred civilians in Iraq and were convicted of it. You know how hard it is to convict Americans on something like that? Damn near impossible. And Blackwater was convicted. What does that say about how bad their war crimes were? But Peter Hegseth is a Blackwater apologist. He loves those guys. And he said, oh, ISIS, Iran is like if ISIS had a state. Really? Pretty sure if ISIS had a state and, you know, it was, uh, they were really in command of the state, they would already be uh, launching attacks against everybody who they consider to be an infidel. That's what they would be doing. How quickly would ISIS press that red button? Iran hasn't even created nukes, and they have conventional weaponry, and they're not offensively launching it against anybody. So that comparison is honestly insane. Totally numbskull comparison there. They're not remotely similar. And we've gone over it before that, you know, the difference between uh, Wahhabi Sunni fundamentalists and uh, Shia Muslims, and it's night and day. The fundamentalist Sunnis are ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the terrorists. Shia are not that. That's not what they do. So it's it's just flat out incorrect and it's terrible fear mongering to a largely uneducated audience that's going to eat this stuff up and they're really going to start to think Iran is like an ISIS regime. Guys, I hate to break it to you. If any government is closer to that, it's Saudi Arabia because they are a, a fundamentalist Sunni government. Now, do I think that MBS is a true believer in the religion? No, I don't. But, you know, suffice to say, there are plenty of folks around him who do believe in it. And, you know, as evidenced by, what is it, 15 or 16 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. And they spread these radical Wahhabi mosques all around the world. So, and we've been in bed with that ideology before, and we are to this day. So as we arm and prop up jihadists, like we do in Syria and Yemen, by the way, the militias on the ground are al-Qaeda and jihadists, and we fund them. As we back them, we turn around and go, you're like ISIS. The guy who Trump killed, General Soleimani, was one of the top fighters against ISIS. 
So it's just I could I can't express to you enough how insane that is and how wrong that is. Um, he says he wants Iran to limp back to the table begging for a nuclear agreement. Except, guys, we had a nuclear agreement that was working, not according to Kyle Kalinsky, according to the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. In no uncertain terms, they said Iran is following the deal. They said it over a dozen times. And we turned around and ripped it up. So you say you want a deal, but we already had a perfect deal where they weren't trading nukes, and we had verification of that, and we had a very detailed process of that. So what do you mean? Like, They just want war. That's what it comes down to. This is the military-industrial complex propaganda network. Then Hannity calls for war crimes and says bomb you know, civilian infrastructure, oil refineries, for example. What did an Iranian oil worker ever do to you? Nothing. Well, plenty of them are going to die. In, in that situation, and imagine for a second if Iran started bombing U.S. oil fields in Texas or, you know, whatever, North or South Dakota. Imagine they started doing that. North or South Dakota is more fracking. But anyway, I, I digress. Point is clear. Imagine they started doing that. They don't care. They don't care about the civilian casualties over there. They don't care about international law. They can never again say they, we're the law and order party. We believe in law and order. You believe in it for everybody else except you. As the U.S. makes a mockery of international law, you, you scold everybody else and try to make them follow it perfectly. So it's, it's unconscionable what they're saying here. And then we have the you know, flat-out lies about, oh, my God, there are sleeper cells in the U.S. Iranian sleeper cells. Iranian terror sleeper cells. My God, these guys are stupid. They're so stupid. Actually, I, that's not fair. I don't know if they're stupid or just lying. Probably a mix of both. Um, but... You know, there were reports the other day of, you know, people of Iranian descent, even U.S. citizens of Iranian descent, being stopped at airports for hours at a time because they, they were being questioned by U.S. authorities. Hey, what do you think about the Iranian government? What do you think about the situation and how it's unfolding? There were many reports of this. Now, the government's denying it up and down, but, you know, all at once, there were like dozens of reports separately it wasn't like coordination or anything. People were saying, uh, my family's stuck at the airport. These were big stories that blew up the other day. Do I believe the lying Trump administration or do I believe, you know, these countless stories that have come out all at once? I'm pretty sure I believe the stories. So this is how these guys think, man. And it's terrifying. And then you just have the flat out calls for regime change. They are actively prodding the United States government to commit war crimes, illegally overthrow another government. And guys, this is all after we saw the devastation in Iraq 2003 when we overthrew Saddam Hussein. We saw the devastation that continues to happen in Syria to this day. We saw what happened with Libya. It's, it's, a, it's a failed state with terrorists running it and open slave markets. Gee, you think you know the regime change we did there was worth it? But they don't, they don't learn. They don't care. They have a very clear ideology. It's neocon. It's hawkish. And it is absolutely insufferable. I don't care what your uh, political persuasion is. I don't care if you're a, a paleoconservative. I don't care if you're a libertarian. I don't care if you're a leftist. Whatever you are, we all got to get together and try to stop any further escalation and further acts of war with Iran. Because this makes everybody less safe. Iranian civilians, U.S. soldiers, and it's also if we end up doing what I fear we're going to eventually do, it's going to also cost a tremendous amount of money. And these guys said it themselves, man. 
they were like, why don't we fix our own country? Why are we, you know, why do we have troops deployed in Kabul and Kandahar when we can't even get clean water in Flint, Michigan? This is like a, a thing that Democrats and Republicans say. So we all got to stay together and we all got to fight back. But here's a clear example of Fox News. They're exposing themselves here. This is damning stuff, man. And this is terrifying stuff. This is like 2003 all over again, except maybe even worse, because this is more bloodthirsty than I've seen anybody. So, you know, when somebody tells you who they are and what they are, believe them. These are all deep neocons. And they're really doing the bidding of the military industrial complex here. And the American exceptionalists, the American supremacists who think we're better than everybody else and we have the right to do whatever we want and override international law. That is not a group of people you want to be in league with, that's for sure. Because that was some of the worst propaganda I think I've ever seen. Okay. I have a little bit of breaking news that I want to give everybody. I just got to find my tweets on it. I just got to find my tweets, bitch. I just got to find my tweets, bitch. I just got to find my tweets, bitch. All the live long day. Okay. All right, so I have some breaking news for everybody, and this is one of those situations where I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so. Um, So during the Iranian strike on an empty U.S. military base in Iraq yesterday, we also got news that a passenger plane went down in Tehran. And the official story that was given at the time was, oh, no, no, it's unrelated and it's engine failure. Well, that's curious, especially because the answer came that quickly. We're like, yeah, that's what it is. Anybody, shut, shut up, shut up, shut up. So my first thought was, well, hold on now. Was it really engine failure? or Because that that's mighty convenient timing right there. So, you know, my guess was maybe the U.S. shot it down because we were in the process of having our military base being shot at and blown up and missiles being fired at it. And do I put it beyond the U.S. to attack, uh, you know, civilian aircraft? No, because we did it in the past, literally to Iran, to Iran. That was my first thought. Then my second thought, and this is after a conversation with my friend who happens to be Iranian, and he was giving me some information that I wasn't privy to just following U.S. media at the time, but... What my friend said is, and and I tweeted this yesterday, take a look. My friend who is Iranian thinks Iran accidentally shot down the passenger plane, thinking it was a U.S. fighter jet. There were rumors in Iranian media yesterday that, that the U.S. might target airports in Iran. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard had installed surface to air guns around most airports. And then I go on to say, The way it went down was unlikely engine failure. That's the official reason they gave. This was claimed within minutes of the crash by Iran. Hours later, head of Iran's civil authority said they had no idea why it went down and the plane made zero contact with air traffic control. Very suspicious. Well, now the breaking news is this. 
Ukrainian flight that crashed just outside the Iranian capital of Tehran was struck by an anti-aircraft missile system, two Pentagon officials and an Iraqi intelligence official told Newsweek. So it looks like what happened is what my friend predicted and what I was tweeting about yesterday. Um, It looks like Iran accidentally shot down a passenger plane thinking it was U.S. aircraft coming to attack them. I think they feared that um, since they were attacking the U.S. military base, that the U.S. was immediately responding and going after civilian infrastructure, going after the airports. And so they made the mistake of shooting down a passenger jet leaving Tehran. Oh, man, that is absolutely devastating. That's devastating. It's, it's heartbreaking. And guys, stuff like this is all so avoidable. This is all so avoidable. What if, what if the U.S. didn't assassinate General Soleimani? What if we hadn't ripped up the Iranian nuclear agreement and we kept on a you know, decent neutral footing with that country? What if there wasn't, you know, massive escalation? What if the U.S. didn't immediately blame the Shia militias for the American contractor who was killed? What if we were more measured and intelligent in our response? A lot of this stuff just doesn't have to happen, and it's happening. And, you know, this is the, this is the horrors of war. And in this instance... It was, it was a mistake. It was a misunderstanding. But if, you know, if they weren't on edge, if they didn't think there was an, an immediate imminent attack from the U.S., then this, this wouldn't have happened. So this is a, a terrifying and terrible story. I feel terrible for everybody who passed away on that flight. You know, there are many Iranians who passed away. A lot of Canadians were on that flight. There was one tweet that went viral yesterday. This, this kid who's a Ph.D. student in uh, Canada of Iranian descent was saying, you know, I predict that there's going to be a war between the U.S. and Iran, or he may have said World War III, I don't remember. And he said, you know, if I die, he said something like, oh, if I die, um, no, I predicted it. In fact, I, let me see. I could probably find the, find the tweet right here if I have it. Yeah, here we go. This guy was on the plane, and it went down in Iran, Ph.D. student in Canada. He said, quote, I predicted that there will be a war right before my flight. If I die, forgive me. Oh, oh man. Terrible stuff, man. Wouldn't it be great if we had leaders who believed in peace? and actively try hard to achieve it, and actively work together with people around the world, and uh, ease tensions. I mean, that world is possible. What we have right now is not written in the laws of nature, that it has to be like this, and we have to always have open hostilities. So just keep in mind, man, this stuff kills, and this is an unfortunate and terrifying event that unfolded that didn't have to happen if different paths were taken at any step of the way. Okay. 
Next. Mark Levin. Conservative host and Blaze Network contributor Mark Levin uh, weighed in on the increased hostilities with Iran, and he somehow managed to make the dumbest comments yet on this issue out of everybody. That's saying a lot because, you know, so many people have been saying wildly incomprehensible things. So listen to Mark Levin in all of his glory with his massively nasally voice tell you... (laughs) what he thinks would happen in, in a situation with all-out war with Iran. He wants to defend Americans' national security interests and defend Americans. That's why he attacked uh, Soleimani uh, after they attacked our embassy. And he's been warning them and warning them and warning them. He did exactly what he needs to do. And in his statement, a day later, he specifically said, I'm not seeking war, I'm seeking peace. And he's moved additional troops in the area, additional bombers into the area, uh, F-35s into the area, more of them. Not because he wants war, but because if they hit us, he wants to hit them back. That's not war, necessarily. The Iranians have been at war with us for, for over four decades. But if we wanted to go to war, we know how to go to war. George W. Bush showed us. He sent 400,000 troops in, and he defeated Iraq in about 43 minutes. We can do the same with Iran. It would take 54 minutes. We've almost been in Iraq for 20 years. And this guy says, oh yeah, the war in Iraq, which we won in 43 minutes. Bro, what? (laughs) We spent $7 trillion dollars in the war in Iraq, $7 trillion when you include the interest and out, if you extrapolate out by 2053, to 2053, I should say, $7 trillion. Minimum 200,000 Iraqi civilians were killed. Thousands of U.S. soldiers were killed. We obliterated that country and created so many refugees as well. The only people who are celebrating are the military-industrial complex, and the oil companies who benefited from this. But that region of the world is destroyed as a direct result of what we did. And we are still there today. And he says, oh, we, it's easy. We defeated the, you know, Iraq in 43 minutes. And it might take 54, did he say, for Iran. How can anybody be so delusional? I mean, I guess what he's trying to say is, oh, to officially overthrow the government would take that amount of time. Well, it didn't, okay, it wasn't even close in Iraq, but even if you grant him that point, that's not where it ends, because what happens next? As we learned in Iraq, it ain't pretty now, is it? And as we learned in Libya, oh, look at that, you overthrew the, you know, the big bad dictator, but what came next was a fail state, a terrorist haven, you know, a fractionalized country where you got warring factions in the streets and you have open slave markets. So by all objective measures, it was better beforehand. So there is no context in which his comment makes sense. And I also love how he's pretending like, oh, 
No, that's not an act of war. Oh, sure, just assassinating a foreign general is not, is not an act of war. Again, the way these guys think is childish because they think the rules don't apply to us. And they think logic, logic is something we can escape. If the Iranian government killed General Petraeus in a drone strike, would we say that's an act of war? I'm pretty sure we would say it's an act of war. I'm pretty sure we would do that. But we get to do this to them, and it's totally fine. And by the way, I haven't even brought up the economic warfare we've waged on them. A lot of people don't know this backstory, but when we pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement, which, again, we did. They didn't violate the deal. We pulled out of it. Um, we started sanctioning them. One of the things we sanctioned was medicine. Iran sued us and said, you can't sanction medicine. This is for the civilian population. It's necessary. It went to the International Criminal Court, the top court at the U.N., and you know what they said? The United States is in violation of international law, and they must allow medicine in. So you know what the United States' response was? To pull out of the International Criminal Court and scold them and continue to um, sanction the medicine. And it's so bad that I literally, there were tweets that I retweeted where the person was saying, like, this is my grandma, and she passed away because she couldn't get her medicine. Not an act of war. U.S. isn't waging an act. What are you talking about? So in other words, you're just going to call the situation whatever you want to call it to fit your argument. That's what you're going to do. And it's crystal clear. That's exactly what you're going to do. So, I mean, this is it's pathetic stuff, man. And make no mistake about it, Mark Levin, if Donald Trump didn't do what he did, Mark Levin would defend it. Donald Trump did what he did, Mark Levin is going to defend it. It has been insane to keep up with all those flip-flops from the, the ardent pro-Trump crowd. Some people voted for Trump because of the occasional non-interventionist talk he had on the campaign trail. Now, some of them have been consistent in that, and they've you know, criticized Trump when he bombed Syria. They criticized Trump when he assassinated the general. Good for the consistent ones. There are plenty of them who just immediately you know, sold their brain out to Donald Trump and said, go ahead, whatever you do, I'm going to defend it. And it, it's all over the place. Like Tommy Lauren was immediately defending Trump, violating U.S. law and international law and assassinating a general, the general who had just defeated ISIS and was on a peace mission at the time. Tommy Lauren instantly defended Trump. And then when Trump just the other day said, oh, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to do more sanctions, but Iran is stepping down, so we're going to back off. She goes, oh, that's brilliant. He's showing restraint. Wait, which is it? If Trump had come out in that speech and said, we're going to do a ground invasion, does anybody think Tommy Lauren would have been against it? No, she would have been like, oh, I agree with that too. So whether he kills the general or doesn't, she's going to defend it. Whether he does a ground invasion or doesn't, she's going to defend it. It's almost like you have no principles and no ideology and no beliefs at all, and you're just going wherever the hell your daddy takes you. And so I don't, tr don't respect or trust any of these ghouls, man. They're ridiculous. They're not, they, it's all a partisan game to them. Do you understand that? It's all a partisan game. game. You go back and you look at secular talk clips. I criticized Obama rigorously when he violated a non-interventionist ideology, as he always did. I said, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with what he's doing here. I don't agree with the drone strike on a 16-year-old American citizen who happens to be the kid of a terrorist. He's not, you know, doing terrorism. You don't kill somebody because they had a bad father. Are you insane? So I was more than happy to criticize when he violated what my beliefs are and what my ideological preferences are. But so many of these clowns just fall right in line. Petty little sycophantic authoritarians is the best way to describe them. 
And Mark Levin thinks he's smart with his nasally voice. He sounds kind of like Ted Cruz. Me, I'm Ted Cruz. Me. Sounds like that, but his whole thing is let me just do propaganda for Trump. And, you know, he's, he's a complete sycophant, and he probably has made a calculation that's going to help him in terms of his ratings and in terms of his, you know, his monetary value in the future. And it's just, it's the saddest thing ever to watch, to the point where he says things as silly as it takes 43 minutes or 54 minutes to win these wars. Oh, my God. We all wish that we were only in Iraq for 43 minutes. We wish we were only in Afghanistan for 43 minutes. We wish, because then I'll tell you what, we'd have trillions of dollars more here, and maybe we could get an infrastructure deal or Medicare for all or free college or do any of the million things that we have to take care of here at home. Time to talk about state Yes. There's a guy by the name of Stuart Varner, who's a, a Fox Business Network host, and he was absolutely beside himself in glee about the profits of some corporations that we're seeing now because of the threat of war. So all the defense stocks, which are really offense stocks because we're the aggressor all the time, um, but the military-industrial complex was going wild when Trump assassinated General Soleimani of Iran. Look at how joyful he is over this fact. But let's look at defense stocks. They're all up. It was American defense products that did this, and the market's response is to buy those defense stocks. I see Northrop, Lockheed, and Raytheon doing very well yeah. indeed, thanks. Well, if you make missiles and guns and stuff like that, you don't do well today. That's fine. Uh, Lockheed's up 10 bucks. That's 2.7%, and Northrop Grumman up a full 4%. Right. Who makes the missiles? I can't remember. Is Lockheed? Lockheed. And Northrop, maybe? Yeah. Raytheon, Lockheed, Northrop Grumman. Those are the defense stocks which really count in this situation. Nice gain. Uh, do show me, please, the defense stocks, because I'll bet they are moving big time today. I think they are. Uh, show them to me, show them to me, please. Lockheed is up 3%. Can you show me Northrop Grumman? And I want to see Raytheon as well, please, because I think we've got big gains there. And if you do get into a shooting fight of some sort, you need their system. Yeah, you order so they're, they're kind of winning either way. There's a lot upside. Yes, show me the machines of death, good sir. Have we seen profits on our murder machines? Wow. He was like a kid on Christmas morning. Show me the numbers. Yes, show me the numbers. Let's get an executive another yacht at Raytheon. Yes. What a pompous dingbat, man. Oh, my God. What a immoral, vapid human being. Giddy over the profits of the military-industrial complex. You're supposed to think this is financial news. That's what his show is supposed to be. 
Okay, I, I've come to the position on this that the incentive structure of having for-profit companies that make machines of death, that's not okay. That's not okay. There's a, a, an inherent problem with that incentive structure in that field in the same way that there's a problem with the incentive structure when it comes to health insurance, for-profit health insurance. Because those companies make more money the more they deny people care. That's how they pad the bottom line. So the, the nature of that system is totally irredeemable. You can't fix that. Because you want there to be incentive to help people to, you know, fix their, their problems, to make them physically healthy. So you have to get rid of the, the mafia middleman that is the for-profit health insurance company. By the same token, everybody knows and everybody agrees that having a profit margin for prisons makes no sense. Why? Because now you're incentivizing private prison lobbyists, which shouldn't exist, to tell the government, hey, make more things illegal so we can make more money, so we can lock more people up and make more money. More asses in prison beds means more money for us. So there's a problem with the incentive structure of a private prison. So you know what another one is that makes perfect sense? The military-industrial complex. Why should there be for-profit defense companies? Because, you know, they're going to love it when the USA assassinates a foreign general illegally and unconstitutionally. They're going to love it because it's like, oh, my God. So we might do another ground war. We might invade. So the government is going to want more tanks. They're going to want more fighter jets. They're going to want more battleships. They're going to want more uh, bulletproof vests. They're going to want more machine guns. They're up two points. Yeah, more profit from there. Yeah, I'm stuck right You have to do the mouth thing for him. I'm stuck right He doesn't even do the mouth thing, but in our impersonation of him, he does the mouth thing. Everybody just gets it. Like, oh, that makes sense for him, of course. Stuck right <laughs> What a pompous loser. So um, look at how propagandized we are, too, that very few people bat an eyelash at even seeing these segments. Your average Joe and Jane might look at this and be like, oh, okay, so some stocks are up. Okay. But if you really stop and objectively think at what you're looking at here, as a direct result of an illegal assassination of a foreign general, there's now, you know, an increase in the stock price of the companies that make our machines of death. We should nationalize that industry, have no profit margin, and only make those weapons based on needs, not based on profit. Because again, the problem here is you have these defense contractor lobbyists who will pay you know, politicians money for their campaign or promise them cushy jobs afterwards, by the way, when they retire. Um, and you incentivize those politicians to do more no-bid contracts and deals and, and give subsidies to these defense contractors and boost their profits even more. And you also, yes, incentivize the United States being more willy-nilly to go to war because, you know, it's easy to make a politician believe we are rightfully the world police when you have Raytheon, Boeing, Honeywell, and all these other companies telling these people, like, yeah, yeah, this is just the way it works. We are the world police. And so we need more weapons. We, you know, you need us. You need us to nonstop keep making these weapons of death. And you need us to make more profit. 
and you need to give us more money and shut up, and you need to send more people to war. So this whole system, this whole incentive structure is terrible. Now, I'm not somebody who says nationalize every industry. I'm just not. I don't think that makes sense. I think history actually shows that there are many instances where certain fields, certain industries are better when they're not nationalized. I think that the world's a messy place. The world's a complex place. And based on all the empirical evidence, yes, there are things that are better not nationalized. But when it comes to for-profit health insurance, when it comes to private prisons, when it comes to, you know, defense companies, oh, yeah, that should definitely be nationalized. There should be no profit margin in it because what we're seeing here is sheer madness. Okay, next. So in the wake of the United States willy-nilly assassinating a top Iranian general who had just finished defeating ISIS and was on a peace mission, um, some polling companies decided, let's ask people around the world, you know, uh, what they think of what's going on, um, if they have confidence in Trump to do the right thing, And there are some damning numbers I have to share with you. So first, take a look at this. 64% of people worldwide said they do not have confidence in Trump to do the right thing on the global stage. 64. While only 29% said they trust him. This is according to a Pew survey of 36,923 respondents in a poll of 33 countries. That is a giant poll. Don't make a joke about that. Don't make a joke about it. (laughs) But that is a very large sample size. 36,923 respondents in 33 countries. So in other words, the overwhelming majority of people around the world are like, I don't trust that guy at all. Are you kidding me? Again, 64% do not have confidence in Trump to, to do the right thing on the global stage. Listen, that's not surprising. Because this is the guy who pulled out of the Paris uh, Climate Accord, for example. What a terrible move that was. I mean, the Paris Climate Agreement was just barely a step in the right direction. We need to go much further than that. But even that, he threw a fit and a tantrum and said, we're pulling out of it because it's unfair to the United States and makes us cut our emissions more than other people. It makes us cut more because we have more emissions than many other countries, by the way. That's why. It's not like, you know, it's irrationally targeting us. They do it based, okay, who's emitting the most, and, you know, are the industries developed to take the next step to to go towards green renewable technology? It wasn't like an irrational targeting of the United States. And by the way, if we lead on getting to green and renewable technology, that's massively profitable for us, and that will massively help the economy. So he pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. He ripped up the Iranian nuclear agreement. Ripped it up. He increased uh, our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. So, yeah, people don't – of course people don't trust him. I mean, that's – duh. But now you see stark numbers here, 64% say they don't trust him to make good decisions around the world. But I have an even more interesting number for you here. Take a look. This is from – they're showing this on Fox News. Now, they're showing it to you know mock it and demonize it and act like people are crazy. But really digest these numbers here. The greatest threat to world peace. This is a survey of Germans, and they were given these options of 
world leaders. This is a YouGov poll. Number one threat to world peace, Donald Trump, 41%. The closest one to him was Kim Jong-un at 17%, and that's way below. And then you have uh, the Grand Ayatollah at 8%, Putin at 8%, and then the head of China at 7%. So by far and away, the United States is viewed as the biggest threat to world peace. This reminds me of the last time they asked this question, by the way. It was, uh, I believe it was in 2014 or 2013, and one of the big polling agencies did it. I forget which one. could have been Gallup. could have been Pew. I don't remember. Um, but they asked the question, which they didn't ask it in terms of the president's, they asked it in just, just in terms of the, gov- the entire government, the country. And the biggest threat to world peace by a lot was the United States. And again, this was back when Barack Obama was president. So if anybody's watching this and they're, you know, a hardcore partisan and they're like, oh, well, it's only because of Donald Trump that this is the case. No, back when Obama was president, there was a poll where they asked the same, effectively the same question. Instead of using the individual, they used the country. Which government is the biggest th- threat to world peace? And the United States won by a mile and a half. So, you know, you had North Korea, India, Pakistan, Iran. They were nowhere near the United States. So what we can do, and this is the Fox News response, by the way. What they do is they go, oh, my God, these people are crazy. That's their response. The 36,923 respondents, 64% of those people, they're just crazy. They're just, you know, unthoughtful reflexive America haters. That's what they are. This is how they spin it on Fox News and among goofy American exceptionalists. But if we're to be serious people, you want to reflect on, hey, why is it the case that these people believe these things? Why do they believe these things? And, I mean, the answer is relatively straightforward. You know, going back to the the one from the Obama years, People believe it because we're the ones who are waging all these offensive wars around the world. You know, we illegally and offensively invaded a country that didn't attack us, Iraq, based on lies, ordered torture to cover it up, and we killed minimum 200,000 innocent civilians. And, you know, we're still in Afghanistan. The original reason they said, oh, we got to get al-Qaeda. Well, al-Qaeda is virtually defeated in Afghanistan. Oh, we got to get Osama bin Laden. Okay, he's been dead for a long time, too, and he was found in Pakistan. All the rationale for the war is gone, but we're still there. And, you know, listen, there's a lot of other factors that go into why we're still there. A lot of it has to do with the fact that we're an empire. And, you know, it's a power move. It's a geopolitical power move to say we have control of this vital region. Also, in Afghanistan, there's trillions of dollars in mineral wealth. In Iraq, there's a tremendous amount of oil wealth. That has something to do with it. Just the profits of the military-industrial complex, as we just spoke about in the previous section, uh, segment, that has a lot to do with it. So it turns out you're not, you're not fooling the rest of the world. The rest of the world can look at the facts. And it turns out they don't think the United States is some benevolent world police leader. No, they think that we are a selfish empire like any other empire in history. We have, you know, thinly veiled attempts at dominance around the world with our puppet regimes we put into place. And we don't care too much about civilian casualties. We don't care too much about who gets in our way. We are the ones who do the illegal and offensive wars and end up killing tremendous numbers of people. Now, you can be triggered by that and act like everybody else is dumb, or you can be serious and look at it objectively and analytically and go, you know what, maybe they have a point. 
and maybe it would make sense to stop waging all these offensive wars, not have 900 military bases around the world anymore, not spend way more on the military than anything else. I mean, it, there's discretionary and, and non-discretionary spending. Um, and what are we at now? $738 billion a year on the military? Guys, free college would cost between 60 and $80 billion. And everybody's like, oh, we can't afford that. But somehow we can afford this gargantuan, ridiculous military budget, which is more than the next 10 biggest militaries combined? It makes no sense. You might be able to fool some Americans on this front, but you certainly ain't fooling people around the world. And these numbers are overwhelming here. So they say we're the biggest threat to world peace because we're the biggest threat to world peace, empirically speaking. That doesn't mean that the, U- the ideology of U.S. leaders is equal to or worse than ISIS. You know, it doesn't mean that there aren't other bad people in the world. It doesn't mean that there aren't other people, other countries, where if they were in our position, they would be doing the same kind of imperialistic stuff. They would. They would. But as a matter of fact, empirically speaking, when you look at the evidence, the reason why we're being called the biggest threat to world peace today is because we're the biggest threat to world peace today. You don't just get to assassinate foreign generals and act like, how dare you want to respond to that? What? Excuse you? So it's time to unwind the empire. It's time to stop spending so much money on the military and spend it on infrastructure and healthcare and college. And um, this stuff has to stop because everything's all out of whack. And we're not fooling anybody but ourselves. And we're barely fooling ourselves. Okay, next. Jeremy Corbyn was asked about the U.S. illegally assassinating General Soleimani of Iran. And um, the way that this question was asked, it's without a doubt a got you question. They're trying to play got you with Jeremy Corbyn and run headlines about, how, oh, my God, he's an apologist or whatever. Um, But he really handled this question well, so let's play it, and then I have a lot to say. Can you doubt that Soleimani was engaging in terrorist acts? Can you doubt that he was uh, not in Baghdad, as the minister said today, in order to plot uh, assaults on the West and on the... He was in Iraq for reasons of contact, I assume, with the Iraqi government. I have no idea what his actual meetings were. All I'm saying is that to assassinate an official of a foreign government in a third country, in this case Iraq, is illegal under any law. And the U.S., if it wants the world to stand by international law, must stand by international law itself. Do you accept that Soleimani was a terrorist, somebody who commissioned terrorist acts against uh, coalition forces in, uh, from a range of countries? I'm not here to defend uh, special forces of um, Iran. I'm not here to defend any of those actions that have happened or been planned for the future. What I'm saying is the only way forward, if we believe in international law, is to abide by international law. This is a provocative act which has made the whole world a much more dangerous place. But Boris Johnson said at Cabinet today he was a terrorist who commissioned acts of terror uh, against the West, the U.S., 
and uh, coalition forces. Do you agree with that assessment? It's very odd that Boris Johnson couldn't be bothered to come to Parliament to say that himself, couldn't be bothered to come and answer questions, couldn't be bothered to answer my letter until early this afternoon on this whole question. He's the Prime Minister of this country. He has to be held to account for what his government says and does. He has to be held to account for his own actions by coming to our Parliament to answer questions. But Soleimani, terrorist, yes or no? Soleimani is the head of special forces of Iran. They obviously uh, operate in all kinds of places that you and I would not agree with or want. That is not the point. The point is it's an illegal act that took place, and if you want to end illegal acts by anybody, you don't commit them yourself. Now, again, I think that was a wonderful answer, but you got the cackling morons who are out there going, <laughs> he's defending him. <laughs> he loves the enemy. Jeremy Corbyn loves the enemy. Pipe down. Like, I, I never understood the people who love to play, like, got you politics. Like, ooh, you gave a thoughtful answer. That's not allowed. Oh, God. Wouldn't it be great if we had, like, actual honest conversations instead of, like, this, like, ah! Nah okay, so, um, first, first of all, to answer one of the things that the guy said early on, or and Corbin didn't know either. He's like, I don't know what he was doing there. We know now he was literally on a peace mission. He was trying to ease the tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia. That's a fact. This is what the Iraqi prime minister said. He was assassinated by the United States while on a peace mission. You want to know why? He's also a statesman on top of being a general. Now, that might trigger you. I don't give a fuck because that's true. So, you know, if you can say, oh, I'm a facts over feelings person, okay. Then digest this fact and move on because it's true. So, um, now he keeps out, is he a terrorist? 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 Um, the definition of terrorist. A person who uses unlawful violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, in pursuit of political or religious aims. That's the definition of a terrorist. He doesn't fit that definition. He doesn't. He doesn't. Even the strongest claim by the United States is he was attacking at the height of the Iraq war. He was training Shia militias who were fighting the United States soldiers in Iraq. So he was training Iraqi Shias who were fighting the United States in Iraq. So in other words, it was targeting of opposing soldiers on a battlefield. That doesn't fit the definition. Now, does that mean that, you know, oh, uh, he's a good guy? No, I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying at all. And if you think that's what I'm saying, well, you're wrong. So get that through your head as well. But he doesn't fit that definition. Targeting other soldiers, no. It's targeting civilians in the pursuit of political or religious aims. So that's not what he is. That's not what he is. Now, but the other point is, and this is even more important, because forget, that's the definition of terrorism, and it's the definition that I happen to think makes the most sense, too. But the definition that we've been told for years, for years, from uh, the U.S. government and Western governments is not the one I just gave, because they add a little thing to it. You know what they add to it? It has to be a non-state actor. 
Now, why? Why do, why do they add it has to be a non-state actor? Now, again, I don't agree with that definition. I agree with the first one I gave. But the reason they add, oh, it has to be a non-state actor is because they want to absolve themselves when they kill civilians for a political goal. They won't be like, <laughs> you're saying we're terrorists? We can't be. We're a state. So we're viable. So when we do it, it doesn't count. I'm not kidding. This is their mindset. This is how they wiggle their way out of it, is they say, no, no, no. When we kill civilians, it doesn't matter because we're a state actor. In order to be a terrorist, you have to be a non-state actor. This is their definition. So he definitely doesn't fit that definition if you use their definition that they have been screaming at us throughout the entire war on terror. That's what they say. Again, that's not my belief is the definition of terrorist is a person who uses unlawful violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, key part, in the pursuit of political or religious aims. That's what I think is the best definition. They say that's the definition, plus it has to be a non-state actor. So in other words, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, they're terrorists. Non-state actors are terrorists. But if it's a state actor, it's legitimate violence, and it is by definition not terrorism. Well, Soleimani was, the, was one of the top generals of the government, the state of Iran. So by your own definition, he's not a terrorist. But look, guys, all of this is irrelevant. This whole conversation is irrelevant. But the reason why I'm responding to it is because I want to show you how they change the conversation and how they demonize the left. This is how they change the conversation. This is how they demonize the left. They, they turn around and they go, oh, my God, how can you trust what this guy says on any, any other issue when he won't even admit that Soleimani's a terrorist? So obviously, he's sympathetic to the enemy. Obviously, this guy doesn't want what's best for you. This is what they do. So you don't have to engage on the actual issue. You don't have to engage on the merits. You don't have to engage on the other fact that he keeps pointing out rightly, which is that this was illegal under U.S. law and international law. This was a war crime. You don't stop war criminals by committing your own war crimes, because then you're a war criminal and the thing that you say you hate. But instead of engaging on that, they're like, aha, Jeremy Corbyn was the best man at Soleimani's wedding. And he, shut the fuck, you guys are such hacks, man. You're such hacks. For once in your life, stop playing got ya, and let's have a serious conversation about what actually just happened here. You don't want to do that because you know what the reality is? There is no actual conversation to be had here. There's no such thing. Let me defend an illegal and offensive attack against a country that wasn't going to attack us and a general that was not going to attack us. Let me defend the wanton, brazen violation of U.S. law and international law. Let me defend this war crime because I don't like him. He's a bad guy. He's a bad guy. Dick Cheney's a bad guy, too. Should Iran send a drone over his house in Wyoming? Oh, that's right, I didn't think so. That's right, I didn't think so. Right. So the law is supposed to be objective and apply to everybody. Justice is supposed to be blind. But morons here try to act like, no, 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 no. Whatever we do is okay by definition and defensive by definition. And whatever they do, no, that's bad and wrong and terrible no matter what. Stop embarrassing yourself. For the love of God, stop embarrassing yourself. I mean, it's really sad, and the media is terrible on this as well because they fall hook, line, and sinker and do the propaganda for the administration just like in 2003. Guys, they started out by saying, oh, uh, General Soleimani was going to do an imminent attack against us. 
And then thankfully, there were some people in the media who weren't their usual selves, and they asked, oh, really? There was a threat against the U.S. homeland? And Pompeo, even though he lies all the time, was like, mm-hmm. So it went from U.S. homeland to, oh, no, it's in the region, and he's actively plotting in the re- actively plotting. You know, Sam Cedar pointed this out. He made a wonderful point. He's like, why are they adding the word actively? He's actively plotting. In other words, he hasn't plotted. He hasn't plotted. We're going to say he's actively plotting. He's in the process of plotting, which means... He's in the process of doing it. I mean, we don't have any evidence to show he was actually doing it because he was in the middle of doing it. So what, you want us to get evidence when he was just in the middle of doing it? They always sprinkle in the weasel words to give themselves that wiggle room. They even said potentially a few times. Oh, my God. Potentially, uh, uh, you know, plotting against What? Potent- anything is potentially happening. Are you kidding me? They're trying to get away with it, man. I'll say this one. I said this a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand more. I almost said I said it once. I said it way more than that. This guy just finished attacking ISIS. Like, we just defeated ISIS. He was our ally in that fight along with the Kurds. He was our ally in the fight against ISIS. Literally our ally against ISIS. So we were just celebrating with him when we defeated ISIS recently. And then all of a sudden, now, you know, totally flip. And uh, even though... He had just defeated ISIS with us, and even though he was literally on a peace mission to de-escalate the tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia, public enemy number one, they want you to believe, public enemy number one, the, the threat of Shia terrorism against the United States. I got news for everybody. The only terrorism in this situation that we really have to worry about is U.S. terrorism, because again, I don't buy the definition of non-state and state actor, U.S. terrorism against Iran. And there's a long and documented history of that boy, let me tell you. You guys all know it because you watch this show. 1953, we overthrew their democratically elected government because Mohammed Mossadegh was going to nationalize the oil and give the profits to the Iranian people. U.S. and the U.K. said, no, sir, not on our watch. We overthrew him in a CIA coup, put in the Shah so we could keep getting that cheap oil. 1979, they overthrew our puppet dictator and put in this the... It's the Islamic Revolution. Now you have theocrats running that country who are brutally repressive. So they took over. We've wanted to overthrow them since 1979, and we've been trying. We backed Saddam Hussein in the 1980s in the Iran-Iraq War. We gave Saddam Hussein chemical weapons and let him use them on Iranian civilians. We shot down a passenger plane, uh, an Iranian passenger plane, a while ago, but we did that. So... There's a long documented history of U.S. aggression against that country. We ripped up the Iranian nuclear agreement when they were following it. We sanctioned medicine going into that country, economic warfare. And now we assassinate their top general, and everybody's going after Jeremy Corbyn because you didn't make the right mouth noises. You didn't do that, and you got to make the right mouth noises instead of focusing on who was the criminal aggressor in this situation. Stupid Jeremy. Okay. Let me take a quick break. When we come back, President Trump has a number one fan, or as people on the interwebs call call him, a stan. (laughs) 
you're going to enjoy that. We'll talk about that. And then I got a new update on what Twitter is doing for you guys. It is uh, not good to say the least. So stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and much more.
we're back. We're back, we're back, we're back. Trump's biggest fan. It's not who you might think. It's not who you might think. All right, I'll set this up for you lovely people. President Trump has uh, a number one fan, or as the cool kids on the internet say, a stan. Um, This guy happens to have a TV show, and it's not Sean Hannity. It is Lou Dobbs, and the people at Media Matters put together some of his, you know, cringiest, most sycophantic moments. Take a look. The joint is hopping at every level on every floor. This White House is energized. There's sunshine beaming throughout the place and on almost every face. It's winter and winning settled. And our White House, our president, is at the top of his game. Another network decided to take a shot at me, comparing my coverage of President Trump to North Korean state TV. We can thank God for for this president. Absolutely. I can almost hear the entire nation, almost the entire nation, applauding the president. Uh, Pastor Robert Jeffers always talks about this president. God sent this president. He uh, He is a person of providence. And I'll tell you, the evidence is accumulating mightily to support the pastor's view. You know, the president, as always, I, I mean, he is the master of, uh, of the Twitterverse, uh, nailing it. They are human scum. Our president, nailing it. This president is a genius at branding, uh, politically. Where are Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, and why aren't they saluting this president and saying, let's work together and get beyond the partisan nonsense instead of indulging in this race-baiting nonsense. I have been told reliably that the president has never talked to a group, a rally, in which there was a vacant seat. Can you imagine? Thank you to President Trump, who at his rally in Kentucky, he had about, I think, 40,000 folks at that uh, rally, said this to to the uh, civil crowd. The great Ludovs. And he said when Trump took over, President Trump, he used to say, Trump is a great president. Then he said, Trump is the greatest president since Ronald Reagan. And then I said, he's the greatest president ever. Uh, And uh, I met every word of it. We are fortunate and blessed to have a president who was made for such times. What could we do if this president were unfettered by the demons of the uh, of the left? See the Adam Schiff, phony baloney, rollicking, frolicking, sanctimony, and pomposity medicine show rolled on to Capitol Hill this morning. The Democrats have stolen an election by that fraudulent so-called Russian collusion investigation. But the president has prevailed against the evil forces that for a time challenged the republic itself. And President Trump succeeding precisely because he is the great American who exalts those values and heritage of this nation and means to assure the American dream for all our citizens. He has restored this country's sense of self, its identity, its traditional values, 
Uh, this president is, uh, if you will forgive the expression, job-boning like no other ever has. Uh, we have a president who has achieved uh, historic status with his achievements. The president has managed to build an unprecedented list of accomplishments. We were scrolling his achievements. Uh, and we got tired of scrolling. I've got to be honest with you. He said we'll get tired of winning. We'll never get tired of winning. But I was getting tired of scrolling. Is it time for the Trump administration to outright defy the act of his court and put the citizenship question in the 2020 census? Who are these judges, these justices, to decide what questions can and cannot be asked by the Census Bureau? The courts continue to rule against the American people in favor of illegal immigrants. The president said what was said. He said it was perfect. And you know what he said? He said somebody needs to look into Biden. And by the way, he's right on both sides. Of course. I love this idea of the presidents, and I just got to tell you, I, I've been hoping for this for a very long time. These schools are all left-wing, uh, yeah. anti-nation uh, 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 actors, and we should be very clear about what they are. They're working against this country and its destiny. Have a great weekend. The president makes such a thing possible for us all. Good night from New York. Come on, dude. Come on, man. That's so sad. That's some of the saddest stuff I've ever seen in my life. I mean, how is it even possible to agree with somebody that much? I'm a big supporter of Bernie Sanders, and I have six, seven different areas of criticism of him where I completely disagree. Probably the most important one being BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement. I think he's flat out wrong on that. You know, I could go through a list of the things I disagree with Bernie on. I won't spare you that now because that's what this segment is about. But, you know, um, decriminalizing all drugs, I think I'm in favor of it. He's against it. Um, sex work, I'm in favor of legalizing, taxing, and regulating it. He's uh, not. Like, there, there are plenty of areas. This is a guy who I generally agree with, but there's so many areas where I'm just like, no, I don't, I'm not with him on that. Um like, he, has he never met a thing Trump did that he doesn't agree with? Because that's what that looks like to me. That's what that looks like to me. You have to ask him. You have to be like, hey, man, can you name one thing, anything, one thing where you disagree with President Trump? I think he might honestly say, no, I don't uh, disagree with him on anything. So you're a, a child, and you've rented your brain out to this man. Um, so let's go through some of what he said there. The best one was the last one. Have a great weekend. Our president makes such a thing possible. Dude, the reason why people are comparing what you're doing to North Korean propaganda is because that is definitely something North Korean state TV would say. Absolutely. <laughs> Have a good weekend. Our president makes such a thing possible. What? Um, he said, I like how he repeated Trump's silliest line yet. Remember when the, the call was released of Trump talking to the Ukrainian president? And he repeatedly referred to it as, quote, the perfect phone call. <laughs> it's one thing to be like, I didn't do anything wrong. Or, you know, you could go with the line of like, yeah, I may have done something wrong, but it's not illegal. So back off. No, he went with, I made the perfect phone call. And Lou Dobbs unironically went out there and said, he's right. It was the perfect phone call. He says that he was the best president ever, ever, ever. Ever? <laughs> J 
George Washington is the father of the country. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. You know, FDR got us out of the Great Depression and, you know, um, was president most of the time during World War II. So, you know, we defeated the Nazis, obviously, with a, a lot with his leadership. I mean, the New Deal. I, come on, man. Come on. You could even, honestly, you could even make a case. Uh, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, they were signed under Lyndon B. Johnson. Now, Vietnam kind of ruined his, you know, uh, legacy, rightfully so. But on the domestic front, War on Poverty, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, you know, that's that's not bad stuff. Donald Trump, the best president ever? Why? Because the stock market's doing well? <laughs> that's, and that's all because of, you know, corporate profits are through the roof and they're doing stock buybacks, but you still have people... Uh, unemployed, underemployed, 78% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, 7 million people losing their health insurance, 93,000 jobs being outsourced when this guy ran as the anti-outsourcing guy. I mean, forget it. Increasing our wars uh, overseas when he said he was going to do the opposite of it. Being in bed with the predatory payday loan industry. You know, he took a million dollars from them for his inauguration and immediately dropped the cases into them when he became president and, and got rid of the the new regulations that were going to go into effect, into effect against them. I mean, come on, man. Is tax cuts for the rich or just recycling George W. Bush's philosophy, which helped lead to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession? And he's doing the same thing, and he's deregulating as well alongside of it to boot. So to call him the greatest president ever is insanity. Um, and then he says, Never a vacant seat. I actually don't know what that means, and I wrote it down in my notes as I was listening to him talk. Never a vacant seat. I have no idea what that point was supposed to be, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Classic. I can't even understand some of my own rantings and ravings. Um, but the best part, without a doubt, God sent this president. He said, Pastor Jeffers always says this is divine providence. And you know what? There's now a lot of evidence for that. Or you're a mentally and psychologically unstable person. <laughs> divine providence of all the people in the world. who God could have picked anybody, man. He went with Donald Trump. He went with the reality TV show guy. The dude who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And he, w he still went bankrupt six times. His businesses went bankrupt six times. That dude, the dude who's called on tape saying, I grabbed him by the pussy, I don't even wait. The dude who, like I just said, seven million people lost their health insurance under his administration. He just cut food stamps. Would Jesus cut food stamps? Would God be in favor of that, taking food out of the mouths of children? Would God be in favor of escalating our foreign wars like Donald Trump is? Increasing drone strikes by a whopping 432%. God sent this president. I I'm sorry, man, but when I watch a thing like, like Lou Dobbs here, it's funny, but at the same time, it's also really sad because it shows that, I mean, obviously there's going to be people who don't try to make their mind up about politics and the direction of the country based on logic, reason, and empathy. You know, based on trying to actually create a system that makes sense and helps people and brings in peace and prosperity. Like he is, he's just not thinking and he's going based off of feeling. 
there are a lot of people who support Donald Trump, particularly because um, he he puffs his chest out and he's really confident, bordering on arrogant, if not outright arrogant, and he just goes around and he tells everybody to shut up and he's aggressive on Twitter and people like the the strength, the pomposity. They like a guy who tells everybody to piss off at a time when, you know, many people immediately kowtow. Many people immediately bend the knee and will give in. Trump does the opposite. He never gives in. He never changes his mind. He never corrects himself. And I think just that aura that he gives off, that aura of strength, I think it dupes a lot of people be honest, man, most of them older white men. I mean, that mostly is the case. I mean, he has supporters, obviously, who aren't old white men, but the numbers show it's overwhelmingly older white men. For whatever reason, he casts a spell on them, man. Donald Trump is what Oprah is to everybody else in the country. Donald Trump is to white men. <laughs> He's the white man's Oprah, where it's just like, oh, my God, she can't do, he, he can't do any wrong, because people think about, well, oh, my God, she can't do any wrong. It's like, that's, that's how they look at Donald Trump. Like, he's this weird, almost like savior character. And the details and the specifics be damned. He just gives them that feeling. And, I mean, listen, Lou Dobbs is a well-off, old, rich, white dude who's been on TV since, like, the 1990s. So he's, he's got health care. He's got all the money in the world. He's comfortable. So for him, he could just project on everybody else. I guess everybody else is doing pretty well because, I don't know, look at the stock market. And look at our confident president. And, you know, he's falling for it hook, line, and sinker, man. I don't think it's just an act. I want to say that as well, just to be clear. I don't think it's just an act. I think he actually has this kind of fawning adoration for Trump, which makes it extra sad. I just remembered what the never a vacant seat thing was for, by the way. Never a vacant seat was he said Trump never had a, had a vacant seat at his rally. That's not true. That's insane. Yes, he has. <laughs> what a myth building is insane that these people do. I mean, that's crazy. Of course he's had empty seats at his rally. Are you insane? I can't believe I couldn't think of that in the moment. Anyway, next. This story is a couple weeks old, but I had to talk about it because it's really important. It's about the food you eat. It's about the meat you consume, if you're a meat eater. I know some people who watch or not. Um, this is terrifying, and it's been underreported in my opinion. So the Hill says the following. Two federal inspectors warned that mystery meat and other unwanted materials will contaminate pork throughout the U.S. under the new meat inspection rules currently being used in a pilot program. NBC News reported Monday. Uh, Food Safety and Inspection Services, FSIS inspectors, Anthony Vallone and Jill Maurer, told NBC News that they filed whistleblower disclosure forms with the Office of Special Counsel about their concerns with the reduction of the required number of federal inspectors at plants. The consumers being duped, Maurer said, adding that the meat may be more likely to contain feces, sex organs, toenails, bladders, and unwanted hair. A pilot program for the adjusted rules for pork lines has been implemented at five plants 
Five inspectors who worked at these plants talked to NBC News, while four others submitted affidavits with similar concerns. That is absolutely terrifying. Um, this is not pork, but this is about pork. And um, you got people blowing the whistle who worked at these companies. And they're saying, hey, man, your, your pork is going to become mystery meat, and the mystery meat is going to have feces, toenails, hair, sex organs, everything in there because of lack of regulation, because now they're changing the regulation. So uh, let me give you some more specifics. They say that it used to be the case there were seven federal inspectors for the meat, I guess per plant, but they don't really specify. And now they're reducing that all the way down to three or two. So there were seven. They want three or two. So just cut the inspectors. Um, and then in some instances, they're even saying none, no inspectors, and the plant employees, the plant's own employees can check the meat, and they don't have to meet any guidelines or do any federal training. So in that situation, just so everybody knows, what the companies would do is they would hire a yes man. They would hire somebody who just says everything's up, oh, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good, regardless of what the meat is like, and they would pay that person basically specifically to shut up because they make more money if they just don't regulate and don't have quality control. So that's terrifying. Now, there are 35 other plants in the U.S., total of 40. Five of them have these, you know, this deregulated meat inspection approach now. The other 35 plants are expected to apply for the new inspection rules. And then those 40 plants altogether produce 92% of the pork that Americans eat. So just understand, this is what happens with deregulation. This is what happens with deregulation. When you don't have quality control, you don't have rules, you don't have referees, you don't have strict enforcement of that, this is the result. The result is going to be terrible quality products, and it's going to be full of all the stuff that I just told you. Imagine feces and toenails and hair and sex organs and whatever, eyeballs, all that stuff in your meat? I don't know about you guys, man, but I am pro-regulation. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm for all regulations. It means I'm for intelligent regulations. I'm for regulations where it makes sense. And this is a problem, you know, this is not just a U.S. problem, by the way. I mean, the Republicans believe in this crisis of deregulating everything. They believe that that's the right way to go, largely because they're bought off by the industry. Um, but you see this all. You see this in China. China's got terrible food safety regulations as well. Um, Joe Rogan just spoke about this the other day on his podcast, where um, there had been reporting that a lot of the street vendors use shit water for. They take the oil somehow out of shit water and use that to cook like your dumplings and your noodles if you're ordering food from a street vendor. Now, this was a common practice. And this is the kind of stuff you see, man. This is the kind of stuff you see. It's not to individually pick on China. It's not to individually pick on the U.S. It's to say this ideology is wrong and it leads to outcomes that people don't want. People want to make sure the food that they're eating is safe and not disgusting. People want to make sure the medicine they take isn't contaminated and it's mixed properly. 
I mean, if you don't have quality controls and regulation, in a lot of these mixing plants, what happens if you get a little bit of an ingredient, a pharmaceutical mixing plant I'm talking about, what happens when you get like a little bit of an ingredient that somebody's allergic to being mixed together in a pill that they have to take for an ailment? They could have an allergic reaction. They could die. This is why, like, it's so important. Regulation is so important. And, you know, we've also, I think we covered stories in the past. I forget the exact animal. It may have been raccoon or skunk. It might have been skunk. That there was this problem of people trying to pass off skunk meat as some other kind of meat. Because, you know, they just save money that way by pretending that this meat is that meat. Oh, my God. Ugh. Now, I am not a vegan. I am not a vegetarian. But I'll tell you one thing. Pork is gone. Done. I ain't eating pork no more. You crazy? Are you insane? <laughs> I'm not eating pork anymore. Why would I? I'm going to eat the toenails and hair and feces and eyeballs and sex organs. and. Ugh. By the way, I think that that might already be the ingredients of hot dogs. <laughs> it's similar. It might, it's not, it might not be exactly the same. I don't think feces is in there, but um, yeah. And then the other thing is, of course, if we have like an unregulated, you know, meat production system in this country, it could lead to, you know, sickness. Like you could have the spread of disease that happens a lot quicker um, because part of the inspection is, is a safety angle to it. So I am pro-regulation for sure, and you should be too. Again, that doesn't mean you're in favor of all regulation like, you know, red tape to get in people's way on purpose. No, I think we can all agree that that's bad. But intelligent safety regulations, food inspections, I mean, to not be in favor of that, you have to either be bought off by the industry or a silly ideologue who does not change their mind with new evidence presented. Okay, next. So I have some pretty pathetic news about freedom of speech on social media to talk about, namely, in this instance, Twitter. Twitter will test reply-limiting feature to beat back trolls. Now, okay, you could look at that headline and go, well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Nobody likes trolls. Trolls are annoying. So if they give people more freedom to deal with their trolls, I mean, what's the harm in that? Well, let me give you more specifics, and then you might change your mind on that. So the article says the following, quote, Twitter users will be able to choose who can reply to their tweets from a list of options that include everyone, only your followers, only people who are mentioned in the tweet, or nobody. And if the account is public, the tweet will still be visible to everyone on Twitter, but only the selected audience will be able to reply. Now, the only loophole here is you can still uh, quote tweet it. Now, why they allow that, I think, is because if you quote tweet it, it won't necessarily show up in your mentions, in your replies. So, you know, somebody can troll you and quote tweet it, but you don't necessarily see it. And so I guess they think it's okay if you don't see it. They're just trying to stop you from being able to see it. However, the whole 
plan here, the whole motivating force behind this very simply is a bunch of insecure blue checkmark elitists were sick of getting dunked on and ratioed by everybody else on Twitter. So for those of you who are not in the Twitter world um, and you don't know what a ratio is, it's an interesting concept. Basically, a ratio is when if somebody says something stupid, there will be way more responses to that tweet of people dunking on that person than there would be retweets. So if your tweet gets retweeted a lot, that means it was a good tweet. People liked it. So when the replies far outnumber the retweets, that means you probably said something really dumb and everybody's like, hey, this is stupid. Don't say some dumb stuff like this. (laughs) So the ratio is basically, it's like a law of Twitter physics. And it's actually a beautiful thing because it shows almost like the self-correcting nature of social media where you can't have any more like that. You're in the lead up to the Iraq war, people in mainstream media could say whatever they wanted and they get away with it. Now with the situation in Iran unfolding, when anybody says something stupid or does CIA propaganda or Pentagon propaganda, you got a, a whole army of people, a swarm of people to respond to these mainstream media idiots who are doing the bidding of the deep state and trying to get us into war with Iran to say, wrong, wrong, wrong. And also, you know, trying to make a a presidential candidate seem like they're better than they are, propaganda about them. You'll have Twitter people will respond to that and be like, shut up. Like, what are you doing? It's just, it allows for the, it's a radical experiment in democracy, Twitter is, because everybody has a voice. And when you give everybody a voice, In most instances, I think the wisdom of the crowds kind of wins out. Now, that's not to say every time the crowds are right. You know, I think there is a problem with PC outrage where, you know, people are very unforgiving of old jokes or something somebody might say is politically incorrect, and they love to, like, attack, attack, attack. That's not saying the crowd is always right. Sometimes it borders on mob justice or lack of justice. But I think in most instances, at least when it comes to politics, at least when it comes to whether it's mainstream media figures Corporate Democrats, establishment Republicans, you know, the administration, there really is this, this sense of we're going to avenge, maybe that's not the right way of describing it, we are going to correct the record come hell or high water, and you're going to see a lot of these people get ratioed, a lot of these people get responded to, and they say dumb stuff. So this is insecure blue check elitists who were like, I want to be able to hide it when people don't agree with me and they want to say I'm wrong about something. That's what I want to do. Jack, fix that. And so now they have this option. Now, thankfully, it's not definitely going into effect yet. It's just in like the preliminary testing phase. Only some people get it. And it's an open question as to whether or not they'll roll it out for all of Twitter. But let me just tell you, I hate this idea. I hate it. Because what, I mean, what's this going to lead to? What, here's what these people want. Media people and politicians want to be able to say whatever they want, sometimes lie, misstate stuff, and then turn off replies and act like, no, 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 there's no dissent to this. It's the fundamental equivalent of like turning off you know, the likes and dislikes and comment section on a YouTube video. I've never done that. I've never done that and I never would do that. I have a principled objection to that because if you guys don't like something I said and it's a widespread belief, okay, everybody will know. 
like there'll be a segment of me talking and you'll see whatever 80% dislikes people go oh Kyle definitely got something wrong here or Kyle definitely said something silly here and the comments again why should I be able to say whatever the hell I want? You're not allowed to respond in the comment section. Of course you should be able to respond. Of course you should be able to respond. I mean, what a ridiculous... Think about how arrogant I'd have to be. No. What I said is the final word, and you're not allowed to say anything back. No. I get the final word on everything. Like, shut up. How fucking self-righteous and dumb do you have to be? But um, that's, this is the functional equivalent of that in the Twitter world. Like, okay, just make it so only certain people can reply. You're only my followers, so I know are going to be nice to me. You're just... I, want, I need a safe space. No dissent, no dissent, no criticism ever, ever. So it's just, it's making Twitter more like your own little insular bubble. No criticism allowed, no self-correction allowed, no ratio to bring justice in most cases. So it's just dumb. And you're going to eventually have a Twitter where it's like media people and politicians lying nonstop, you know, and, and, and corporate accounts screaming out into the wilderness, into the void, just trying to be cool into the void, but really no interaction. And it's, it's a terrible move, man. And I'm, I'm mad that they did it. I will say, or that they might do it. They're just in testing phase now and they rolled it out for some people. I will say my initial concern about, oh my God, they upped the character limit. I don't like it. I, whatever. I'm fine with the character change now because it's still not too much. I think it's possible to get to a point where the tweets get too long, and it's like nobody wants to read your freaking essay here. So I think there is a point where it gets to too much, but I was wrong initially because I don't think it's too much now. I think it's still a fine line. Um, so those changes were not the end of the world. This one I, I dislike a lot more than I dislike the, the character change because – it's kind of taking away one of the best aspects of Twitter, which is that it's this radical experiment in free speech and democracy, and, like, everybody gets to respond. So, okay, you have this big-time celebrity, you have this big-time politician, you have this big-time news anchor who tweets something. Dave in Cleveland is coming after you. And I like to see what Dave in Cleveland said back to you. And, in fact, I think Dave in Cleveland is a lot better than you are. <laughs> so, Yeah. This is dumb, and I'm really mad that the elitists... This happens with, like, every freaking awesome platform, you know? Every awesome website, every awesome platform. They're great, they're great, they're great, then they get too big for their own good and too popular for their own good, and then it gets infiltrated by weirdos, and then also corporations start to take it over, and you got insecure elitists who are like, I think you should change it because I don't like how it makes me feel. <clears throat> Terrible, man. It's the same thing. Remember when YouTube was even more open and more about the independent creators like us. It wasn't that wonderful. I mean, now, and you guys know, because we covered the story, YouTube brags about redirecting independent uh, news and politics back to CNN and Fox News and MSNBC. They brag about that. They brag about, you know, disadvantaging, disadvantaging? Is that a word? Disadvantaging. <laughs> they brag about giving this show a massive disadvantage and rigging the rules against this show and others like it. Any independent news and politics is now deprioritized and the algorithm in inevitably pushes more CNN, MSNBC, on, and Fox News to you because they're authoritative news sources. So, yeah, so you're trying to make YouTube the exact thing it is not. YouTube exists so people can get away from that overly corporate, politically correct world. And then now you're saying, well, we... 
we want the advertiser money here at YouTube and Google, so we're just going to make this that. We're going to make it like cable again. They get overly corporate. They get too cautious, and they end up destroying really good things. I hope they don't roll this thing out for Twitter. It's terrible. All right, next. So there's dissent in the Democratic ranks over impeachment. Democratic senators are growing impatient over the delayed start of President Trump's impeachment trial, and some say it's time for Speaker Nancy Pelosi to send the articles of impeachment to the Senate. Democratic lawmakers in the upper chamber say Pelosi has achieved her goal of putting a spotlight on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, um, Mitch McConnell's opposition to witness testimony, and they're ready to start hearing House impeachment managers and Trump's defense team make their arguments. Quote, time plays an unknown role in all of this, and the longer it goes on, the less the urgency becomes. So if it's serious and urgent, it should come over. If it isn't, don't send it over, said said Senator Dianne Feinstein, the top-ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee. Asked if colleagues are starting to get impatient, Feinstein said, if it's going to happen, yes, referring to the likelihood of a trial actually taking place. Now, since I prepped this story, apparently Lindsey Graham said they're going to start next week, the trial. I don't know if that's true. Um, It was only one article, and I haven't seen much else about it, but... There was immense pressure put on Pelosi by Democratic senators. In fact, Axios had a list. I don't have the list in front of me now. But it was a lot. Many Democratic senators were like, send it, send it, send it. And they were attacking her for it. This is a rare instance where I totally agree with Pelosi and totally disagree with the other Democrats. And here's why. I've explained this to you guys before. But now you're really going to see how right I am on this. Why would you be in a rush to send these articles of impeachment to the Senate, knowing that Donald Trump is going to get acquitted, and when he gets acquitted, it is overwhelmingly likely he'll get a 5 to 10 percentage point bump in his favorability rating. Why do I say that? What am I basing that off of? This is what happened with Clinton. Clinton's impeachment died in the Senate, and he got a massive approval rating bump. So Trump is definitely going to get acquitted. Democrats don't have anywhere near the right number. And so he's going to get acquitted, and he's going to get approval rating bumps. If you notice, after impeaching him in the House, what happened? The polls started uh, swinging against Trump, and it was 55% of the country, which, again, is the highest it could possibly get, I think, 55% of the country supported impeachment of him. Now, why? Why all of a sudden do the country say, oh, okay, we agree with impeachment? Because you impeached them. You impeached them in the House. And there's this weird bandwagon effect that happens in the country. We're like, oh, oh, we did impeach you? Oh, yeah, I'm totally for that. So you had 55% on your side. When it goes to the Senate and he gets acquitted, the bandwagon effect is going to swing right back in the other direction. People are going to go, oh, yeah, I was, I was against it. No, I'm for Yeah, Trump, awesome. I, I Thumbs up. And so he'll get a, a five or ten point bump for sure. Now, do I think Nancy Pelosi knows this and she politically, politically calculated? No, I don't think she knows it. I think she was honestly holding off to try to get better terms for the trial from Mitch McConnell in the Senate. That's what I think she was doing. It had the unintended upside of not sending it means you're avoiding his acquittal, means you're avoiding his uh, approval rating bump. 
So I don't think she had the right idea in not sending it, but she accidentally was doing the right thing. Now, these other Democrats are the ones that are pissing me off massively. The Democrats in the Senate, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? You think there's a chance you're going to get it through? There's none, zero, none. So why are you in a rush to acquit him? Anybody who's in favor, oh my God, send the articles of impeachment now. Anybody who takes that position, the burden is on you to explain how this is going to help the Democrats and how you're going to win. Answer, you're not going to win, and this isn't going to help the Democrats. So you're, you are in a rush to acquit him. You have to answer that question. Why are you in a rush to acquit him? Why are you in a rush to acquit him? I'd sit on those articles till the end of time, and I'd just keep blaming McConnell. That's what I would do. If I was Pelosi, I'd be like, it's not me. It's him. He's blocking it. It's not me. It's not. I obviously want to send it. He's blocking them. He's blocking them. He rigged the trial. What do you want me to do? He rigged the trial. And then you make that a big thing. Oh, my God. The Republicans are not playing fair to the point where they don't even want to have the trial. They don't want to have the trial. They want to rig the rules. That's what they're doing. Oh, my God. McConnell's terrible, right? Oh, McConnell's terrible. And Pelosi would be able to get away with this because the media loves Pelosi and they hate McConnell. So she would definitely be able to get away with that if she did it. But she's, but she's kowtowing to the Democratic senator pressure, and she's giving it to them. And all these idiots are rushing towards their own Armageddon. Congratulations, Dianne Feinstein. Congratulations, Joe Manchin. Congratulations to every other Democrat who's just itching to acquit Trump. I think it's just really pathetic, and it shows how terrible the Democrats are. And by the way, Donald Trump just assassinated an Iranian general. Like, all in, all hands on deck, all systems go to defeat his warmongering. Call it out. Illegal under U.S. law. Illegal under the Constitution. Illegal under international law. Not allowed. This general just finished defeating ISIS. This general was just on a peace mission. What are you doing? Call it out, call it out, call it out. Oh, I thought you said you don't like war. Why are you doing war? Oh, my God. You said you thought uh, the... Iraq war in 2003 was terrible. Why are you in a rush to do the Iran war? Hit them over and over and over and over. Do the War Powers Act. Thankfully, they are doing that, although there's some weird uh, maneuvering going on now where they're trying to not give credit to Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna, even though they led the way on this stuff. They led the way on preventing war with Iran. But uh, Pelosi wants to give credit to the centrists, and so now Tim Kaine is leading the way. Unbelievably gross on her part. But only do that. Forget impeachment. It's done. You lost. Deal with it. Actually, you didn't lose yet. You slightly won because now it's 55% supported. Take your win. Cut your, cut your losses. Take your win and go. Make, does that make sense? That probably doesn't make sense. <laughs> I think you will lose if you keep going and he gets acquitted. You will. So just take your tiny win and go. But they're not going to do that. They're going to bungle it. They're going to mess it up. And, 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 guys, this is working out to be at the exact wrong time. The exact wrong time. Because... Trump just shot himself in the foot with this stupid Iran thing, and he's struggling in the polls, and right before the election, you're going to acquit him? Leave it to the Democrats to turn a victory into a loss, and I think that's what we're witnessing right now. So be careful what you wish for, everybody, because no matter how much you wish we lived in a world where, oh my God, they're going to get Trump and he's going to be taken down, that's not going to happen. So stop lying to yourself and look at this from a realistic political perspective. Because impeachment is a political process. It's not, it's not a criminal investigation. It's a political process. So don't, don't get ahead of yourself here and end up hurting the chances of the left and the Democrats in 2020. But I think that's what's happening. So anyway, 
I don't know why they're in a rush to acquit Trump, but that's what's going to happen, and that's going to be good for him at a time when he shot himself in the foot by doing this Iran thing, which is going to hurt him, I think, in the polls. Democrats are, are rushing to rehabilitate him. So I don't know what's going on with the mainstream media, but they're either knowingly doing propaganda for Bloomberg or, it, you know, unknowingly doing it. But they're doing propaganda for Michael Bloomberg. There's no doubt about that. But take a look at this article. This is just one example of many. Uh, Bloomberg proposes increased minimum wage to aid badly broken economy. Now, I'm a proponent of an increased minimum wage. So, great. I'm happy that he's taking this position. But is he really taking this position? Listen, again, there were a thousand articles written like this, and they reported this as if just very matter-of-factly. This is what Bloomberg supports. What they don't tell you is this. His position very recently was not the position he says he has now. Watch. solve the problem, as the populists would argue, by taking things away from the rich. You solve the problem by giving opportunity to everybody and by creating jobs. And some of these things, I think, some of the policies are misguided. I, for example, am not in favor, have never been in favor, of raising the minimum wage. I don't know why I cut off a little bit there. Lee Fong tweeted that out. He's from The Intercept. He says he's not in favor of raising the minimum wage. That was super recent. Super recent. Now, we're supposed to just take his word. Oh, yeah, no, I support raising minimum wage. By the way, he didn't marry this with a mea culpa or anything. Not that that would necessarily make me believe him, but it would be more believable if he first owned up to being wrong about it all these years and then said, okay, um, now I've changed my mind and I do believe in a minimum wage increase. Again, I still wouldn't believe him, <laughs> but it would make it, more like you're not trying to hide your past on it. The article that I just showed you, there wasn't a single mention that up until very recently, he was against a minimum wage increase. Again, they're just reporting it as a matter of fact. Like, oh yeah, he supports a minimum wage increase. Maybe you want to go into his record. You want to go into his history. Uh, by the way, if you think that's it, you could say, oh, Kyle, well, come on, man. That's just one that's just one thing. That's just one comment that he made at one point in time. When he was mayor of New York City, he vetoed a minimum wage increase. He vetoed a minimum wage increase. So here you have a guy with a history of opposing it, vetoed a minimum wage increase, publicly argued against a minimum wage increase, and now he says he's for it. And the media uncritically reports that, yeah, he's for it. At the very least, it's incumbent upon these media organizations to include his history in the articles. At the very least, at the very least, you have to say, he says this now, but by the way, there, here's a clip of him saying he's against raising the minimum wage very recently. And here's a, you know, the story about how he vetoed a minimum wage increase when he was mayor of New York City. They didn't do that. That's journalistic malpractice, and it's really sad that you have to come to a loudmouth YouTuber like myself to get the truth on this.
because, you know, I'm only one person. How is it that my fact-checking is better than the entire media apparatus? Um, really pathetic. I hope there are at least some articles out there that, that point out him saying this along with, by the way, his record shows the opposite. But I don't know. Every article I saw on it, and I saw two or three, no, it was, oh, matter of fact, yeah, he wants to raise the minimum wage. And then there is, if you want to get, you know, conspiratorial about it, it is absolutely possible that these networks, Michael Bloomberg makes them very wealthy. Michael Bloomberg did over $100 million in ad buys. Where does that money go? It goes in the pockets of the networks. So he's flooding the airwaves with money, just absolutely bombarding, carpet bombing the airwaves with ads and raining money on these news networks. So are they incentivized to maybe treat him with kid gloves and to take him seriously? One could definitely argue that. One could argue that a lot of these, uh, you know, so-called journalists also realize Bloomberg is a potential future employer for me because Bloomberg News is in, is in the business. So maybe if I'm not too hard on him, maybe if I leave my current job, I'll be able to get a job at Bloomberg News. I just want to be clear that all this stuff that I'm saying now is the theoretical portion of my commentary. But I think that dynamic should be pointed out because you do have all these conflicts of interest and you do have, you know, a media that has largely treated him too kindly. He bought his 5% in the polls that he has right now. He bought it. And you don't hear people flat saying that. And they're doing a disservice to the people because that is what that is. When you're a billionaire, you hop in this late, you skip the first contest, and you carpet bomb the airways with $100 million or more in ad buys, you're buying that support. At the very least, they could fact check him and be honest about his record, and they're not doing that. Okay, next. This is as important as it gets. Wait, let me see which one this is. The brush fry, blah, 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 the brush fires in Australia are absolutely terrifying. Um, they've been burning since September, and there are reports that it could take months for them to go out. Now, I will caution up front. There are some pictures out there that have been doctored where, like, there's this map that's – there's this picture that's supposed to be from space of Australia and the fires burning – but it's not the real one. People made it look like it was even worse than it is, which is insane because you don't have to do that to make your point. You don't have to do it. It's bad enough as it is. No need to, like, try to make it even worse. Um, but the facts on this are just mind-boggling. So more than 12 people have died. 2,000 homes are gone. 
hundreds of millions of animals are dead. Hundreds of millions. One article said 500 million animals are dead. And um, here's how big the fires are. They've scorched an area twice the size of Maryland. Nightmare. So let me show you some pictures here. I think that this is, uh, this is really important to show you, you know, what this looks like in real life. So you see fire in the trees there. Smoke inhalation is going to be a problem there. You got this weird orange hue in the sky. You know, you got, uh, that's a terrifying picture. That's what, it, that's what it actually looked like, the fires, if they were on the U.S., in the U.S. Um, again, smoke that's going to cause breathing problems, health problems. Um, koalas, so many koalas have died, and they're trying to help a koala out there with some medical attention. Look at the, the color of the sky there. That's insane. The scorched trees. Again, that smoke is, it's causing its own weather systems they say. That's how terrible the smoke is. So you can't, breathing in that air is not safe. You're going to have medical problems as a result of it. And um, this is, uh, you know, what we're seeing is a situation where People are, this is getting worse and worse. What we're seeing is wildfires over the years have gotten worse and worse and worse. They've gotten worse in California, in the U.S. Now they've gotten worse in Australia. And you can never say that any one individual event is a result of climate change, because that's not scientific to say that. But what you definitely can say are the trends. The trends are a result of climate change. And you have stronger fires that last longer as a result of climate change. Droughts are getting worse as a result of climate change. Hurricanes are getting more powerful as a result of climate change. The sea levels rising, obviously. Um, you, you have a situation where there will eventually be wars over water. There will eventually be wars over water. That's how bad this is. That's how real this is. There are major cities that will be gone, that will be underwater as a result of climate change. Um, we need a all-systems-go effort to try to combat this. And the Paris Climate Agreement was just a little step in the right direction. We have to go beyond the Paris Climate Agreement. We need to set some hard, fast dates to totally get off of fossil fuels and move towards green and renewable technology. We need a green technology revolution, which, by the way, would help the world economy massively if we did that. And there'd be tremendous job creation as well. But um, it's wild to see a beautiful country like Australia and just wildfires in so many places. In so many places. How many lives were upended by this and ruined by this? You know, how many refugees now are there as a result of this? How, how many people are going to get sick from breathing in that toxic air, which is, you know, a, there's a, a red sky. There's another picture with a red sky. In fact, let me show you that one right now, because this, this one is the one that first slapped me in the face to wake me up to what was going on here. The red 
sky. So some pictures, it's like an orangey hue when the fire's further away. I guess when the fire gets even closer, you have this like bright red sky, something like out of a horror movie. And this is what people are dealing with. I mean, imagine, imagine a situation where we just can't escape regular natural disasters. I mean, it's bad enough as is, but imagine it getting worse, like whether it was Puerto Rico that got obliterated by Hurricane Maria or the Bahamas, which just got obliterated by another hurricane. At some point, something's going to hit Florida. Florida hasn't had a massive hit since Hurricane Andrew, which was back in the 1990s. But at some point, another one's going to hit Florida. I mean, imagine just on a regular basis, places getting hit with Category 5 hurricanes. Imagine every single year, California having out-of-control wildfires, Australia having out-of-control wildfires. Imagine that. We might not have to imagine it much longer because it might be the reality. Now, I'm not a scientist and I have no idea, but what I would caution is to listen to the scientists. Definitely listen to them. They know what they're talking about. Don't listen to ExxonMobil executives and don't listen to propagandists on Fox News. So that's my advice on this front. And you just hate to see such a beautiful country being obliterated by these fires. I hope that, you know, you would think that in this, at this late date, we would have some way of combating it that would actually work and work quickly. But apparently that's not the case. So we just kind of sit here while Australia burns and so many people's lives are ruined. It's such a heartbreaking thing to witness. Okay, next. All right, let's talk about Jank Uger. He has made the news here in a good way. Jank Uger is, of course, running for Congress in California's 25th district, and uh, he decided to ask his opponent to her face at a lunch for a small group. So you're going to see there's not many people here. That's because it, they're doing a lunch for a small group here. But this, I believe, is the first time he's seen his opponent, Christy Smith, in person. And he used this moment... <laughs> to do something pretty bold, something I'm not sure I've ever seen other politicians do. Um, he asked her to stop taking bribes to her face. Watch this. Christy and I are, uh, are totally different candidates. She's avowedly centrist. Fair enough, okay? Uh, and she has said that on multiple occasions. I am progressive. So I believe in public, uh, in Medicare for all, Christine said, public option for people who want it. That is a massive difference. I believe in Green New Deal. I believe in getting money out of politics. Now, people can pay lip service to that, but I started a group to get money out of politics. You would have meant me to get it out. It's called Wolfpack. I started a group called Democrats to build a progressive wing of the party. So we have real, clear differences. That's why the vote would be decided. That's why I love primaries. And I love to use the voters because that's our job is to represent the voters. And along those lines, I want to ask her today, because I don't take corporate PAC money, I don't take lobbyist money. Christine, are you going to continue to take corporate PAC money? Are you going to continue to take lobbyist money? So I'd love to hear that. I think all the voters would love to hear that. And things like United Health that gave you money. 
now when you say you're against spending their wallet having taken money from health insurance companies, it gives people at least pause to leave you that money back. Thank you, guys. Are you going to stop taking it, Christy? I mean, it's a fair question. <laughs> That's a really fair question. Is Christy Smith going to stop taking money from for-profit health insurance companies? He get $1,500 is what she's taken thus far from a specific. He's giving a specific um, health insurance company. But, yeah, is she going to stop taking corporate PAC money? Is she going to stop doing bundler dinners? Um, is she going to stop taking money from for-profit health insurance companies? I'm sure there's other nefarious special interests in there that she's taking money from. It's a fair question. You know, Jenk is obviously not taking corporate PAC money, and he's trying to raise all of his money through small-dollar donations, and it's working. He's competitive with her. I think he, he, he has raised about the same amount of money she has, and her average donation is ridiculously high because she's a corporate Democrat and a sellout, um, and his average donation is super low because, again, small-dollar donations. And guess what? The media is trying to spin this against Jenk. I love that. I love that. They take his strength and they try to attack him on that. Like, they were like, a lot of the money he's taking is coming from outside of the district. Okay, have you checked Christie's? Because I'll say this. Let's say, let's be kind to her. Even if the money she's taking is from within the district, it's from, like, corporations and the rich in the district. <laughs> That's who it's from. So they try to take his strength and spin it against, oh, some of your donations came from Cleveland. Yeah, and guess what? The person in Cleveland also wants to have Medicare for all and free college and a living wage, and they gave 15 bucks. That's a wonderful thing. Last time I checked, people in Jenks District also have spleens, like the people in Cleveland, and they want to make the country better. So definitely, small-dollar donations is definitely the way to go. I'd rather have a lot of the money come from outside of the district, but the small-dollar donation, than from inside of the district, but big donors. And by the way, again, I don't even know that it's true that she's not taking money from outside the district. Of course she's taking money from outside the district. What the percentages are, I don't know, but that strikes me as irrelevant. The other thing is he has been asking her a million times, let's do a debate, let's do a debate, let's do a debate, let's do a debate. Media decided to run an article, I forget who it was, could have been LA Times, but maybe not, don't quote me on that, where uh, they were like, Jank Uger to hold debate without leading candidate. They tried, to, they tried to make it, they tried to frame it like he didn't invite her and he was snubbing her. When in reality, she was snubbing him and the voters, mind you, by not agreeing to a debate yet. So they spun it. They spun it. This is classic. Remember, the New York Times smear against Jank Uger. This is how you know they're all full of it and they just don't like him. The smear was, he said to David Duke, of course you're not racist. When anybody who watched the video knew very clearly, he was saying, yeah, of course you're not racist. As in like sarcasm, as in like, well, obviously you are. You're David Duke. <laughs> so they're, they're barely trying. They don't like Cenk. Why? They don't like Cenk for the same reason they don't like Bernie Sanders. The populist left is viewed with just as much scorn as the populist right and the, the right. The media, by and large, they're establishment Democrat central. They love to bolster the corporate Democrats. That's who they love. So Pelosi will get the positive coverage. Dianne Feinstein will get the positive coverage. Jank Uger? No way. 
Ilhan Omar? No way. Bernie Sanders? No way. So now you know the dynamic, but I think it's awesome that we have a candidate who's running for Congress who's flat out saying, like, oh, by the way, you're taking bribes. You should stop. Will you stop? I'm just asking, will you stop? I take no bribes. You take many. Are you going to stop? I'll give you one example. The health insurance companies. What do you think? You going to stop? It's a good question. Maybe you guys should ask her as well. Politely. Politely. But maybe you should ask her as well. Hey, are you going to stop taking money from the for-profit health insurance companies? Seems pretty important if you want to craft health care policy in any way that will help the people. All right, final story of the day, y'all. It'll be a quick one, too. So this seems like it's a joke. It seems like it's fake. I swear to you, this is a real story. Apparently, CNBC, while discussing the Democratic primary, put up the wrong picture of Andrew Yang and of Tulsi Gabbard. You can see it here. You got, uh, they put Kirsten Gillibrand for Gabbard. And they put a guy by the name of, I don't know if it was Jeff Yang or John Yang, but they put that dude, a random dude, for Andrew Yang. What the hell, man? <laughs> I mean, that's inexcusable. So, listen, I mean, this, I'm, this is where the question comes in. Is it nefarious or is it just really dumb staffers who don't follow this stuff closely and just slapped a picture up there. It's possible it's either one. It's possible that they got somebody working in the graphics department, uh, you know, or is a is a backup producer who was producing the show that day and just threw it up there and yeah, I get yeah, that's it. Go ahead. That's possible, but it's also possible, if not likely, that they're like, "Yeah, I just don't like them." Well, I mean, I I guess it's also possible that somebody's just trolling. But if it was trolling, you would expect not just these two candidates. It just so happens to be the case that two of the more anti-establishment candidates are the ones who get this treatment. So I'll leave you to believe it's not a troll. It's either total incompetence or I think more likely is it's nefarious. It's nefarious. They don't like Andrew Yang. They don't like Tulsi Gabbard. And they are throwing them under the bus here and treating them as super irrelevant, as they've done every step of the way, mind you. Not just CNBC, but the media, by and large, has treated Andrew Yang like a joke and treated Tulsi Gabbard like a traitor. You know, that, that's how they've covered them. I mean, look at, I, there should be a quantitative analysis of the stories about those two. Because in the case of Tulsi Gabbard, all the time is, oh my God, you love, uh, uh, you love dictators, you love Bashar al-Assad in Syria, why are you an apologist for genocide? Oh my God, you're, you know, a Russian plant. Like, these are the stories about Tulsi Gabbard. You have Kamala famously saying about her, like, she's not a top-tier candidate like I am. Mm. Hmm, that's funny, look at, would you look at this, who's still in the race and who's not? Interesting. Uh, in the case of Andrew Yang, they, they, they view him as like a crazy person and a pie-in-the-sky guy because he's in favor of universal basic income. But that's not crazy. That's not pie-in-the-sky. In fact, even Milton Friedman, who's this right-wing economist, supported a version of universal basic income. It's actually a very 
you know, straightforward and moderate policy. They have it in Alaska already, and they're doing wonderfully over there. So I think the fact that he has $1,000 a month, and they're like, oh, please, please, and the fact that he wasn't involved in politics before. But it's not just that, because Tulsi's a congresswoman, and they still treated her like crap. So I don't know what it is. Whenever you make mouth noises that aren't pro-establishment, they come after you. And that's why they've treated Bernie Sanders terribly. They've treated Tulsi terribly. They've treated Andrew Yang terribly. Now, everybody knows I have way more disagreements with Andrew Yang um, than I do with Bernie. I have way more disagreements with Tulsi than I do with Bernie. I have way more disagreements with Yang than I do with Tulsi. Um, But that's not the point of this conversation. The point is it's not a thing this late in the race to put up the wrong picture for the candidates. That is inconceivable, unimaginable, incomprehensible. So, I I mean, I lean towards thinking it's nefarious and they just don't like them. Um, I lean in that direction over incompetence. But I don't know, man. I'll ask you guys. What do you guys think? Is it incompetence or is it nefarious? Is it we hate them, so so we're going to do this? Or is it, you know some idiot staffer who's just, you know, because I, th- I might be a little bit too conspiratorial in saying it's nefarious. I don't know. That's why I'm asking this question. That's why I'm posing this. But suffice to say, I'm absolutely shocked that this happened at this late date, at this late date. They've been in the race for so long. They're hanging in there. They outlasted many establishment candidates. And um, this is how they're treated. It really is something else. All right, guys, that'll do it for the show, bitch. I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a good rest of your day. I'm out. Peace.